Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Scott Kennedy, uh, and welcome to the U.S.-China Innovation Forum. Um, I'm a senior advisor here in the Freeman Chair in China Studies, at CSIS, uh, but today uh, I'm also uh, our safety cadre. Uh, officially, I'm supposed to be your safety officer, but I was searching for a better term. I was thinking of safety emperor uh, or safety czar. Um, in any case, um, if there's a safety reason why we need to leave this building quickly or you get tired of my jokes, um, then uh, we will proceed calmly out the exits behind me to the sides out in the front and we will meet across the street uh, in front of CSIS. We can all have lunch uh, at the Beacon Hotel all at once. Uh, technology is at the heart of the 21st century and it's also at the heart of US -China, the U.S.-China relationship. Tech presents many opportunities but also many risks and challenges. The purpose of this forum is to help set the agenda for public policy conversation in Washington, Beijing, uh, and other capitals, but also amongst companies and other stakeholders wherever they are. CSIS is focused like a laser beam on this question, and our China Innovation Policy Series, or SIPS, has produced several reports and served as host to several public and private events over the last two and a half years. And we have more reports forthcoming, including an edited volume, China's Uneven High-Tech Drive, which will be out later this month, another on China's commercial aircraft sector coming out next month, and still others in the pipeline. Now, as helpful as this research and expert-level discussions are, this conversation in Washington and other capitals needs to hear more from industry. I spent a lot of time traveling around China and the U.S. and interviewing business people. And I'm struck by one thing. They know a lot more about technology than I do. And more about business than I do. And I try really, really hard. And I still can't hold a candle to them. And they know more than most officials in Washington or Beijing or elsewhere. And so we need to hear from business so that we're as informed as possible about what the state of play is in technology, where our real opportunities lay, where our real challenges are, and most importantly, what are feasible solutions to these issues. That's why I'm so delighted that CSIS is collaborating with the U.S.-China Business Council, uh, the preeminent voice for American industry doing business in China. The expertise of their staff, their member companies, and their members' partners in China and elsewhere is breathtaking. I want to thank the Council's President, Craig Allen, as well as Anna Ashton, Gloria Gonzalez-Micklin, uh, the rest of the Council's fabulous staff for embracing this partnership and for helping us in every facet to make this forum a success. This is also part of a longer story for me personally. 25 years ago, I got my first break ever with the Council when I published my very first article in the China Business Review on the Stone Group, Sutong Jituan, which was one of China's first private high-tech companies. So this partnership brings us full circle. 
I also want to thank my colleagues and staff here at CSIS, including Chris Johnson, who holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies, uh, Ming-Da Chiu, who's our Cracker Jack Research Associate and Organizer Extraordinaire, uh, Alyssa Perez, who's our new Program Coordinator, who couldn't have found a better time to start with us, our interns within the Freeman Chair and other programs who have helped out the last few weeks to make this event possible. We're deeply grateful also to the sponsors of this forum, Applied Materials, and the Smith-Richardson Foundation, uh, which also supports our broader initiative because we couldn't do this job without them. Uh, CSIS is also interested in technology and all of you, and we really appreciate having you all here today, and we want all of you to participate as much as possible. Uh, you can do so uh, by offering comments and questions uh, during the day as well as offering comments to the rest of the world uh, by tweeting about us. Uh, and we encourage you to use the hashtags CSISLive and hashtag USChinaInnovation. Uh, so uh, we want you to contribute so uh, we can have a fuller discussion here uh, as well as expand the discussion elsewhere. Finally, I want to thank each and every one of today's speakers from the US and China who have traveled from far and near to be with us today. You are the experts, and we look forward to hearing your insights and learning from you about the various aspects of innovation, from financing innovation to carrying it out. That means executing and scaling up, uh, to protecting innovation. I'm ready with my pen and paper to hear and learn from this discussion you will have with each other and with everyone here in the audience. So with that, let me turn things over to my partner, Craig Allen, who will offer some additional opening remarks and then introduce our welcoming speaker, Secretary Cohen. Craig? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start out uh, by thanking uh, good uh, partner Scott Kennedy and Chris Johnson and uh, Dr. Hamry and everyone at CSIS who's worked so hard on this event. We're very grateful. I must also say thank you to Applied Materials for generously supporting the event. But perhaps most importantly, thank all of you uh, for coming today and for joining this very important conversation. So Orville Schell of the Asia Society recently said that those who study China must have a very fine appreciation of paradox. Specifically, when we look at uh, the agenda uh, to create a robust bilateral environment for innovation, we must squarely face the trilemma of trying to balance three conflicting needs. We must try to reconcile the needs of the scientific and innovation community in both countries the national security establishments of both countries, and our commitments to free trade, open borders, and global institutions. In both Beijing and Washington, the tensions between these three, innovation, national security, and free trade have become extreme. In both Beijing and Washington, the trade-offs that are currently being made between these ideals will have profound consequences that will not be limited to the bilateral relationship. So the trilemma of innovation, national security, and free trade may seem unbridgeable to some. 
In my view, when the Chinese government leaders speak of quote unquote indigenous innovation or quote unquote self-reliance uh, for technology, they imply decoupling China from the global innovation community. Similarly, there are those in the United States who are actively, advo uh, who are actively uh, advocating decoupling as a way to address our challenges with China. In both countries, we very much need a public debate on decoupling. What does it mean? Is it realistic? Which industries are we proposing to decouple? What is the cost? Will it take place within or outside of the WTO framework? And I think most importantly, will it bring us greater security or less? We need a public debate on these issues. And we also need a robust uh, bilateral dialogue between China and the United States on these same issues. So I think that probably all of us would agree that a good starting point would be full and effective implementation of our WTO commitments by both countries. Thus, we're grateful uh, to see both governments working so hard on these issues in the context of the 301 negotiations led by Ambassador Lighthizer and Vice Premier Liu He. While most of the 301 issues under consideration by the two governments could be framed by the WTO commitments that we have both made, clearly we need to think beyond the WTO as well. We need to set the agenda to promote a free, fair, and reciprocal innovation regime that can be embraced by companies and individuals in both countries. So we have a lot of work to do. To arrive at that free, fair, and reciprocal destination, at a minimum, we would need to determine what are the rules of the road for bilateral technology competition? What are the rules of the road for bilateral technology cooperation? And perhaps most importantly, how do we enforce those rules? To this end, I very much look forward to our discussion today. We look at uh, today's event as a framing exercise. We don't expect to solve any of the issues under consideration, but we do wish to set the agenda for the future, and we look forward to working with each and every one of you as we try to progress this agenda. So to start us on our way, we're most fortunate to have Secretary William Cohn uh, to give us his thinking on this subject. Americans of my generation will all remember Secretary Cohen's wisdom and courage at pivotal points in our nation's history. I'm tempted to call him a national hero, but I won't because he'd be angry at me. But um, yeah, uh, that's what I think. Uh, he is indeed a great patriot. Uh, not only a warrior and a statesman, Secretary Cohen is renowned as a business executive and a scholar and a writer. I did not know before today's event that he has published 13 books, including two volumes of poetry, and that's pretty amazing. Secretary Cohen, can we invite you to the podium?
Craig, I could have listened to you forever uh, this morning. <laughs> I enjoyed every moment, especially of your exaggerations. Uh, one of my favorite uh, writers, Somerset Mom, once said, uh, at lunchtime, uh, eat wisely, but not well. And then after lunch, um, speak well, but not wisely. So I'll try to speak uh, briefly uh, and uh, perhaps a bit wisely. Um, I just returned from the China Development Forum uh, in uh, Beijing. And uh, I've been going, I think, to that uh, forum for at least uh, 14 or 15 years now. And it has grown bigger and bigger uh, every year. Uh, in addition, I f go back 40 years to the time I first went to China and, and met with Deng Xiaoping and had him explain to me what the four modernizations were going to be. And frankly, I was a great skeptic. Uh, I didn't think it was possible for him to carry out the, the vision that he had presented. And of course, uh, he proved me to be absolutely wrong because 40 years later, it's one of the most dynamic, if not the most dynamic uh, country in the world. Uh, and it's ironic for me, uh, number one, to have been a great skeptic and to see what has happened. I have become a great admirer of what the Chinese people have been able to do in that very short period of time. In fact, um, never in the history of this planet have we seen one country uh, make such a dramatic transformation to bring so many millions of people out of poverty in such a short period of time. And so there's a great deal to be admired um, on the part of the Chinese uh, people. There's also a, a good deal to be uh, fearful and skeptical um, because you have a great economic power uh, which is also morphing into a great military power, regional in its uh, immediate aspirations, but I think much more global uh, in long term, which is going to present a challenge uh, to the United States in terms of the security aspect that Craig had just mentioned, uh, as well as the trade. Uh, it's ironic for me to sit in an audience uh, or watch on television President Xi uh, give a Ronald Reagan speech uh, and to uh, meet with President uh, Premier Li uh, to listen to the, um, a, category, a category of, um, of issues that used to be, belong to the Republican Party. Uh, and so sitting in, one, in a Chinese audience listening to those speeches, I, I, I flash back uh, to what used to be the Republican Party's uh, platform in dealing with international trade. Um, but you know, 20 years ago, uh, China was content to supply the world with products like clothes, plastics, low-end uh, products. And now they say that's off. We still do that, but we want to we be uh, competitors. We want to compete at the top level. Uh, we don't want to just copy. And the, the reputation of the Chinese is always that they're great copiers. They really love to copy things. They can do it instantaneously. Uh, that's something of the past. They're still copying, but they're innovating. Uh, and when you see the kind of devotion that they have to innovation, the students who are now driving uh, their um, academic studies toward uh, technology, it becomes uh, a bit intimidating to see how they are focused on that issue. They're going to compete, as President Xi has said, uh, at 10 of the top sectors, uh, whether it's uh, 5G, uh, artificial intelligence, um, computer science, whatever the, uh, the issue is going to be, they want to compete uh, at the, uh, the level with quantum uh, computing, robotics, and they want to be um, number one. And that was an issue that came up while I was in uh, Beijing this last time. 
Uh, I had to explain to various audiences, including the students at Nankai University, where I give a lecture once a year, uh, what is this business about America first? What does that mean in terms of your dealing with uh, China? America first. I said, well, um, let's, uh, let's stop for a moment. Is there any country in the, on the planet that says China's second, Germany's second, uh, France second? Every country says, I want to be first. Uh, that's just the natural, normal instinct. I want to be number one. Even Virginia, in the basketball games, mostly, they wanted to be number one. <laughs> Nobody wants to be number two. Uh, and so that's just normal. And we have to look at it in that context. China wants to be number one. They want to compete with the big guys up top. Uh, and if they can do it, that's the capitalist system, uh, that we have this competition. But we also understand there has to be some, uh, at least, effort made at compromise. And so any one power that gets too big, that goes unchallenged, is going to present a real problem in terms of dealing with other countries. And so it is up to the United States, to the EU, and to other countries to say, uh, we understand your goal, um, but we have a goal as well, and let's see if there is any way of having a meeting of the minds, uh, some kind of modus vivendi uh, for living on this planet uh, in peace. Um, there are inequities that currently exist, you know, for the Chinese um, uh, people who are here and who may be watching. Um, uh, you can't have Hank Paulson or Henry Kissinger, who's a trustee of CSIS, or Hank Greenberg uh, making statements saying that the system is not working. China is not, in fact, complying with the WTO. The shifting of the balance, uh, it's no longer a flat platform. It's no longer equal. And so things have to be done to get that balance back in effect. Uh, we know that there is a lack of reciprocity on the part of a number of companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, Snap. They've been walled off from China. At the same time, we've got Tencent and Baidu and others uh, who have uh, been able to con uh, control their own uh, environment in, in China, build up a, a, a massive uh, scale, and allow then be allowed to go out into other countries uh, with that kind of uh, scale behind them. So there has been a lack of uh, reciprocity, and that is something that uh, Mr. Lighthouser has been pointing out and saying that's one of the key elements. We have to get back into some, uh, some form of balance. And if we don't, then we've got a problem in terms of going forward. Um, Craig mentioned, and Scott has talked about this as well, can we decouple? Is it possible to decouple from China? Can we just rip up uh, all of the, the lines of communication, all of the supply chain, uh, and bring it all back home? Now, President Trump has talked in those terms, and some of those in his administration have talked in those terms, but it's not realistic. There will be some companies who will want to pull up stakes uh, in China and locate their supply chains in other countries. That's to be expected. But most companies, most of the big companies, are, are not going to be pulling out. Uh, and frankly, I think it's unrealistic for anyone to believe that we're going to completely decouple. Uh, there are some who feel that we're going to have two separate systems. We're going to have the American-led system or the Western-led system and the Chinese model. Uh, how that will work out in parallel remains to be seen, but I, I think it poses even greater problems for us. Uh, given my background uh, as far as um, having served at the Pentagon, 
I don't think you can separate security and trade policy. They are intertwined. Uh, and one of the messages I've tried to bring uh, to Chinese friends and counterparts is that it is really important for business to continue to be advocates for a pro-trade, pro-China policy. Business has been the group that has kept this relationship together. And if it starts to break away, if it sees that it's no longer a viable relationship and that we're going our separate ways, then that brings into the focus the security relationship. Uh, and that does not bode well for any of us. If you take away the pillars of trade, then the issue becomes one of military, of military power, of China saying, we're going to extend our power, certainly throughout the South China Sea. We're going to extend it in other parts of the world because we have our supply chain now. Uh, and we're a global power. And then you have only the military issue to be resolved, and how will that be resolved? So I think it's fundamental, uh, really, it is imperative that we find a way to have a trade relationship with China. And I believe that we'll have an agreement in the short term. I don't think it will actually deal with the fundamental issues. It's not only the transfer of intellectual property, but the whole vision that Xi has for his country, for China, and the vision that uh, President Trump has for this country, for America, uh, I, I don't think uh, that we can allow that to collide. And so what has to happen is we, we have to make an agreement understanding that any agreement we make is going to have its deficiencies, uh, no matter what we sign tomorrow or uh, a month from now. There are going to be real challenges ahead. We're going to constantly be at loggerheads on some issue dealing with trade, and we ought to understand that. But the important thing to remember is that unless we have a trade relationship, unless we understand that our economies are intertwined, and with that goes security concerns, then the only thing left is to look for is conflict, and that's something that not any country on the planet should want to have. So I'm encouraged, frankly, with the sentiment that I saw uh, while in China. Uh, they're all saying the, the right things. Uh, Prime, Premier Li, uh, President Xi, they're talking the way uh, I believe the Republican Party stood for for all of these years. You know, rule of law, open economy, uh, fair play. Uh, all of that is being said. And the question is, will China actually carry through and do it? And if they do, then we have a relationship, I think, which is the most fundamental of any that we have in the world. Uh, without China and the United States working together, it's not going to be a very happy time on this planet. And that's something that all of us have to dedicate ourselves to, to fighting against. So I'm glad you um, invited me to uh, share a few comments with you. Uh, as I said, I've uh, been at this now for 40 years. And I admire the Chinese um, uh, people enormously. Um, but I, um, I, we have to get the playing field back uh, in balance. And that's hopefully what uh, Mr. Lighthouser uh, and um, uh, Steve Mnuchin um, are doing. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Secretary Cohen. Uh, for the guidance, for your, your insights. Uh, you've given us an agenda to talk about today. You've given us an agenda for Washington to manage for some time to come. I also want to say that I appreciate your shout out to UVA. Uh, wahoo wah. 
and, um, and, and so this is going to be a great day. Uh, we really appreciate it. it it's, it's trite to, to, say, to sometimes for people to say this, but we really want to, we should uh, say this. We deeply, deeply appreciate your service over many, many years to our country and to this world. So if everyone could please join me in thanking the secretary. Thank you, Craig, also for your uh, opening remarks. Uh, with all of that, let's get the show on the road. Let's get started. We're going to move right into panel one on financing uh, innovation. So um, stay in your seats, and we're going to get started with the discussion uh, right away. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm excited to kick off this first panel on financing innovation in China, which is one of the more exciting topics because we all have to know who's going to pay for it and if it works out, who's going to profit from it. Uh, my, I'm Martin Trozempa. I'm a research fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics about a block away, and I focus on uh, financial innovation. But we have a fantastic panel here. I'll, I'll go with just brief introductions to them and then move into uh, a lively and fruitful discussion. We have Michael Kwan of uh, Kwan Capital, who will, is an investor. So we have all of the facets of this question from the people who, like him, who are evaluating the potential investments in innovative companies for, for, uh, to deploy their capital. We have Joyce Chang from JP Morgan, who's going to be looking more on the, on the macro side and to, has an overall picture of innovation in China. And then finally, we have Vincent Mo, who's on the other side of the table from people like Michael, uh, trying to raise money for entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, I'll kick it off with the first question, which is about, uh, more broadly, how exactly is China's financial system working to finance innovation? If we read the media these days, everything seems to be about deleveraging and the private sector innovative firms being unable to receive funds from the riskier channels they got them from in the past, uh, but also not from the banks. But then there are also these other interesting channels and developments in uh, venture capital, PE, and potentially high-tech board, a lot of interesting things going on. So do you, how do you assess the overall ability of China's financial system to finance innovation? And is it getting better or worse these days? We'll start with Michael. Good afternoon. Uh, that was <coughs> a little tough. Uh, actually, I, I think Chinese uh, uh, financing uh, activities goes, go around the cycles. And so we're in a cycle of uh, realizing that not in innovation, not all innovation, Makes lots of sense. Um, so there, you see some activities uh, pulling back, uh, valuations coming down. Uh, stock market went down, but this year it went up 20, 25%. So, um, that, so, so there is uh, actually a realization of uh, when the economy, actually Chinese economy is slowing down. What is substitute for the next growth engine? And the consumer uh, spending is one, but I think uh, every country is talking about innovations. But in innovation takes time. Uh, innovation not always bring new, uh, uh, new growth engines. So I think China is in that stage realizing that uh, uh, what kind of innovation we need, uh, whether it's mostly consumer oriented or digitalization for consumers, or we want to do a more industrial, a smart manufacturing, or EVs, or 
automobilities. So uh, I think uh, we're in this um, down cycle, which is good for investment, so because the valuation is coming back, coming down a little bit. Um, so I think it's, it's a quite healthy uh, uh, correction for the long run. Uh, the market still have lots of money. Uh, the, the market, stock market, the capital markets, there's still lots of uh, VC funds and uh, private equities. And the local governments are really doing lots of financings. Uh, uh, I, think, uh, uh, I think in the long run, China's capital market is still very, very important for innovations. Well, thank you so much to CSIS and to the U.S.-China Business Council for the invitation. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. So at J.P. Morgan, we recently put out a report, Made in China 2025, a new world order question mark. And I thought I would just say, share some of the headlines um, from that report and how we're looking at the um, development of financial and capital markets in China right now. So we do see China's growth coming down over the next decade by about two percentage points to about four and a half percent. And we think that will take about half a percentage point off of global growth. So very much as Michael said, we're in a period um, where not just in China, but globally, we've been in a period where it's more subpar growth. You, the fiscal stimulus that China is doing is different than past stimulus. I think they're trying to turn away from some of the old patterns, and it's more on income tax cuts rather than on increasing the debt burden. Um, it remains to be seen whether that will go into consumption. But one very big part um, of the Chinese strategy is that they know they need non-resident capital. Um, so they have proceeded with opening those markets. And I do think that 2019 will be remembered as a year where China is moving into more of the mainstream of entering some of the equity and the bond indexes. So I thought I'd share a few um, numbers about that right now. So right now, if you take a look at the um, domestic retail and institutional investors, you know, a lot of the money is still held in deposits. They tend to favor money market instruments, fixed income, and the exposure to equities is very low. And if you take a look at all of the overseas investors, they still hold a relatively small amount um, in the onshore um, Chinese equities and bond markets. It's in the order of about 430 billion in total. So China has been underrepresented um, in the fixed income and equity markets, even though it's the third largest bond market in the world. Um, our estimate, and you're seeing it come into play this month because China has gone um, into the Bloomberg um, former Barclays um, bond index, is that if you have China included in the three major bond benchmarks, being JP Morgan, um, the Bloomberg Index, and what is the FTSE Index, previously Cities Index, we think it could generate about 250 to 300 billion of flows as China goes to, you know, 5.5% to 7% of those indexes. Um, taking a look at the mutual fund market in China, it's only about 10% the size um, of the U.S. market. And on the trade agreements, we do see that, although a lot of the discussion has been about um, increasing purchases of U.S. goods, we're also starting to hear about some actions beyond just increasing the imports. And that includes um, easing restrictions on financial services. I mean, J.P. Morgan did receive its um, permission for a license, which means that you can, over three years, um, have the majority 
um, ownership stake. Um, it's also relaxing some of the JV requirements in certain sectors, auto being one of them, and putting some um, revisions into um, the foreign investment laws. So I think there's a realization in China as they slow, they need the foreign capital to continue to come in. They need to um, find ways to open their market to enter into um, the benchmark indexes. And looking at just some of the differences um, in, in China's market compared to the U.S. market, um, you know, the tech at the e-commerce companies make up about 40% of the MSCI China or double the tech weight in the S&P 500. And if China is going to be successful in executing the Made in China 2025 agenda, you know, there is an argument that this makes China a structural overweight to some extent. Um, although you may not have the currency appreciation that um, a lot of people had, had sort of uh, you know, looked at you know, several years ago with respect to the way they evaluated China. Um, in our report, we look at 18 sectors across the Chinese economy. And we, um, you know, and this includes, um, you know, fintech, um, you know, clean energy, uh, includes telecom, um, it includes um, the internet, robotics. Um, and we basically conclude that in two areas, we do see China really achieving a much more dominant global position. One is AI, and I know there are many sessions on AI that are coming up. Um, the second is actually on clean energy just because of the need. In other sectors, we see more of a self-sufficiency argument. But I, again, um, as was raised in the introduction, is it, is, is it going to be cooperation or self-sufficient? I, I, I see it as sort of a self-sufficiency in a number of sectors, and, and a few sectors where just on global competition, we think it's much harder for China, like commercial aerospace, for example. Um, but we do see that um, you know, on the technology side, there are some real advantages in China. The centralized nature of the funding, the size of the market, you know, the fewer concerns on data privacy that give China some clear advantages. Thank you. Vincent? It's my turn. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Michael and Joyce talked about uh, big things, and uh, we'll talk about some small things about ourselves. Um, about financing innovation, um, you know, what happened to, to us, to me, or to my company, uh, Fund Holding? Um, we are a pure uh, Chinese startup. 19 years ago, I started my company in, in China, and uh, we are zero. It's like zero in China. We are earlier than zero. Um, we experienced um, kind of a three stages of funding. Uh, early stage, um, we had a five million U.S. dollar from uh, Goldman Sachs and IDG, these two U.S. companies. So that's the money uh, I raised uh, to start up uh, my company in, in China 19 years ago. Um, other than that, uh, the second stage, I would say it's a later stage, uh, it's when we, uh, uh, we were planning uh, our initial public offering uh, on NYC. It's uh, 2010. Um, uh, together, we raised uh, about um, uh, about 400 million, you know, for the IPO uh, through the capital market. Um, the third stage is really it's about three years ago when we are trying to transform our traditional business model. It was great before innovation, and three years ago we thought it's, uh, um, that we need some change, so we need financing again. 
uh, we reached about 700 minutes from colleague group and uh, IDG together. So together we kind of reached about one billion US dollars, uh, lots of money. And the last round of funding is not that successful and we are still struggling that and trying to uh, use the money wisely to change the company which is innovation, you know, you know, things. So that's what happened to me, to my company in China about financing a single company like us. Uh, so the money in China is, uh, uh, there are lots of money there and uh, they need good projects. So that's what I, I personally fear. Second, second, uh, what happens to what happens to other you know Chinese innovations other than us? Uh, in my understanding, uh, there are three categories of funding in China: funding innovation, and the first category is uh, the pure traditional venture capital and the PE fund. I think Michael, your fund is probably PE, right? Not an early stage VC, right? Okay. Uh, so that's including individuals. Uh, uh, more and more individuals in China, they become wealth. They have the money to invest. So that's category one, which is pure traditional venture capital and uh, private equity. Category two, it's, uh, I call it a new types of funding from those big technology companies like uh, Baidu in China, Alibaba, and Tencent in China. They are really not only giant technology company, they are the biggest investor into innovation ideas and projects in China. They are even much bigger than the traditional PE, Michael Wright. So, uh, so that's happening uh, now. But this kind of investment is always uh, you know, be done together with a strategic uh, you know, arrangement with those big companies. So that's category two. Category three, uh, the money is really from the government. You know, Chinese government uh, from the central level and the provincial level and the city level, they have uh, invested heavily to support innovation, support technology. So those are the three categories of funding to support innovation now in China. Uh, third thing, it's we, other than money, there are also a very supportive policy in China uh, to support innovation. Uh, uh, three things, uh, three directions. One direction is direct funding from the government uh, for those uh, uh, you know, leading technology, innovation things, the government, different level of government, they are going to attract or incentivize those investments, those, uh, those initiatives without a return. They just uh, try to support, to move up the technology. And second direction is those uh, indirect funding. You know, uh, uh, first direction is really with money. And second, second you know, funding is really indirect, like they give you office space for free. They give you uh, facilities for free. And they give you land for half of the price, or even lower than that, to support technology, support innovation. The third direction is really tax and uh, other government fees related tax deduction. So including, you know, if you spend more on R&D, those expenses can be deducted. And uh, high technology company, they can enjoy half of the tax rate. 
things like that. So those three things together form the, the policy orientation to support innovation and technology. Uh, so with those things uh, uh, talked about, my conclusion is really um, China has been emphasizing very much on innovation uh, throughout private sectors and uh, the government elsewhere. Uh, it's, uh, all of us now, technology, innovation, are going to change things, uh, which is going to decide the competitive advantage you know, among the world. Uh, secondarily, uh, you know, the boom of funding innovation, I think in China in the past several years, there are just too much money flowing, flooding, not flowing, flooding into this uh, technology and the innovation. And this booming will continue uh, into the next 10 years. I think it's not going to stop. Uh, so more money and more capital will be there, and more talents will be there. And, uh, more support from the government and from the different you know, you know, private sectors elsewhere. So that will be the coming 10 years. Uh, lastly, there, are, there is a big room you know, for the US side and China side to cooperate in, in supporting innovation. Uh, US has been leading in many ways you know, uh, the, uh, the chips, and, and big data, artificial intelligence, all of this. And China is catching up uh, very quickly. And uh, because China is not a small country, you know, it has uh, talents, it has uh, capital resources, and a lot of other things. So China is catching up quickly. Uh, this kind of creating some conflicts between China and the US. But I think there is a, uh, there, there is, you know, big enough space for China and the U.S. to uh, cooperate and uh, to uh, move the world forward faster. I think a partnership will be very, very helpful, you know, between U.S. and China. Thank you. Thank you. So the second question is uh, looking at the funding structure and exits. So. One of the more interesting phenomena has been that the successful Chinese tech companies seem to always list in the United States and not in China, and that the dirty secret there is that these foreign investors often make a lot of the money from the successful Chinese companies, both in the VCPE side but also in the listing side. Do you, continue, do you think there, we're going to continue to see successful Chinese companies listing abroad, like in the United States, or are they more likely to, because of the move with the High Tech Board and some of the other changes in China's IPO structure, that they'll be able to actually list and uh, successfully raise larger rounds of money in the, you, in, uh, in the mainland? I think we, we did uh, uh, the first listing. Uh, uh, not we. I was a part of it. It's called China.com. So we brought internet to China, and there was the company listing in the United States. But because we had a, that time, that was not a VIE uh, structure. I don't know if people know the VIE structure. China, uh, we cr there was a creation for companies outside China to supply technology to Chinese companies because internet that time cannot be operated in China. So therefore, you have some contractual agreement. You listed the technology arm. That's called a VIE. And then I think Sina next. I think you're probably VIE as well, right? We, so we have the same structure. That kind of structure actually allowed foreign investors to make investment and at the same time to allow 
certain sectors China were not allowed to, that time, uh, operating, uh, to be listed seeking capital in the United States. A very, very creative way of doing things, which what I think is one of the biggest innovation. I think a continue, uh, there's still, still going to be good companies coming to the United States. It's a mature market and is, uh, I think overall it's much more healthy than the Chinese market. Uh, so that's why Alibaba is here. Uh, it's not in China. But I think they are talking about in China now to also has this uh, reform. And so therefore, we probably, for the first time, we're going to have a so-called uh, market that you don't have to be proved in order to be listed. Uh, if underwriter wants to take you to IPO, you can do it. And we're trying in China. I think that's going to be encouraging uh, uh, some kind of listing. I just met uh, someone from U.S. and he's part of shareholders, going to be first listing in China. I think it's good news. Uh, but I think overall, you know, uh, companies just want to get to uh, the market where they can access to a funding, reputation, uh, or cash out for the owners. And it continue to raise lots of money. I think, uh, Vincent, your company, if not listening in the United States, you're not going to raise a billion dollars in China, I guess. And even if you raise a billion dollars in China, you have so much restrictions of how do you spend the money on that. Uh, I think China is changing on that. And I think uh, eventually, uh, I think Joyce, you can comment on that. Eventually, I think the Chinese market is going to be uh, given some years to catch up with where the United States is going to be. So we have some hope on that. Um, no, so I, I mean, I, I do think it will take China is at a fairly nascent stage just of entering these indexes and becoming more mainstream. So I think this is a gradual process, and China's going to want to keep you know its its own kinds of controls over the whole process. But one area where we really do see the expansion happening more quickly is their expansion into emerging markets. So um, we do think that you know China's internet companies they have competitive advantages that you really do set them apart. You know they operate in a single market um, instead of multiple markets with different languages, which the U.S. markets operate globally. They have um, a higher market concentration to begin with. Uh, you know Alibaba has 60% market share in China's e-commerce market. Amazon has only 40%. <coughs> in the US, and there's less concern about the data privacy. So we see you know, companies like Tencent and Alibaba very likely to you know, see substantial developments in their capabilities, particularly in AI, that could be beyond um, some of the US peers over the next five to 10 years. And where we're seeing a lot of that expansion um, is actually into the overseas emerging markets. So if you look at something like um, Alibaba, they've acquired Lazada, which is the leading e-commerce player in Southeast Asia. And um, you look at areas like cloud computing, AliCloud you know, um, is sort of looking at, you know, could they generate as much as 50% of their revenue um, from overseas at some time in the future, despite having a fairly low um, exposure um, right now. And we've also seen the same thing with the supply chain, that Vietnam seems to be one of the key beneficiaries. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of supply chain moves, but I do think that it's not just the U.S.-China, that the expansion into emerging markets and the receptivity of the emerging markets um, will make some of these expansion opportunities go more quickly into those areas. Um, I think there is a uh, huge, big potential for big companies uh, coming out of China, 
uh, other than those already there, like uh, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, all of these big companies. Um, the, uh, think about the 1.4 billion population there. There's a big, huge demand. And also, um, uh, well, China is a, a rapidly developing country uh, comparing to the U.S. market, and which gives China the opportunity to, uh, to create or to, uh, it has the environment uh, for the big companies, for new big companies to jump out um, in the U.S. or other mature countries, because everything is settled, everything is organized very well. So it's much difficult to, uh, for the newcomers, for the new companies to emerge you know, quickly out. So I think China has the environment for big companies to come out uh, even much easier. So that's, uh, uh, that's uh, the, the things there. And secondary, secondarily, the capital market is adjusting to uh, innovation technologies also. Uh, uh, I don't know how to translate the uh, uh, high-tech the high tech board, you know, the newly endorsed high tech board of Shanghai Exchange, right? It, it happened just one month ago. Uh, you know, after President Xi announced about six months ago, less than six months ago, it's, uh, and, and, the, and the technology board is now um, uh, up and running. It's a completely different system of approving the listing companies. You know, you, it's a registration system rather than an approving you know, system. It's like the U.S. SEC approving you know, the, uh, the listed companies. So I think this new uh, capital market system or structure will also support the new companies, and uh, some of them could be big in the future. So shifting gears a little bit and, and connecting to some of the earlier discussions about U.S.-China, much of what's been on investors' minds these days is changes in the investment regime, beefing up of the CFIUS, potential export controls from the United States on emerging and foundational technologies, but also China trying to make sure that uh, some of its technologies are not taken out. What, is there a generally a sense that as an investor, uh, there's a not for sale sign on American tech firms? If you're an investor from China, are we still going to be able to have this kind of cooperation with uh, VCs and uh, now that Firma and CFIUS are, are able to have jurisdiction over non-controlling investments, how do you see this changing the financing of investment going forward between U.S. and China? So speak? Yes. Okay. Uh, what did two years make difference, right? I, I think uh, two years ago, uh, there was a, what do you call China price, that Chinese company coming to the United States, you give 30% more higher. Mm -hmm. And now there's no sales sign. Uh, I, I think there's a, a lots of fears from both countries to play that. Um, so what do they say with the trade war, when two elephant fights, it's the grass gets hurt. Um, and I think it, technology cooperations, and this is a problem like that. And I'll give you an example that uh, despite you think China has AI, I think China's AI is mostly in consumer use. But I think the U.S. is much better uh, in enterprises and the industrial AI. And then we were trying to put a consortium together, Japanese, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, 
uh, Chinese and to bring this technology to to uh, to China because we think they have they have so-called symbolic AI, which is not traditional machine learning, and uh, and that's a it would be great if you put into chips and then they can can enable EV cars to uh, drive uh, autonomously because today's AI is just not a very much reliable, you know, it's a black box. When they made a mistake, uh, you don't know why they make a mistake. And I think, uh, look at the Boeing, you know, maybe they have some of these kind of issues. But when you have a symbolic AI, which is uh, these companies out of California, and we were trying to do that, uh, and because of the CIFRS, because of the, the, the export controls, and I think we found it's very, very difficult to do it. Uh, because the political environments there, and I think now U.S. has, what, 21 sectors that basically, they don't say the bar to China, but you really have to take a look mm -hmm. at it. And that creates some difficulties for funds to make investment. Uh, and I know a large fund, they just raised almost $2 billion. Uh, they're actually, most of the money come from the United States, but because they have a few uh, partners, and they are not U.S. citizens. So they are not qualified as a U.S. fund. So when they make a company investment in a United States company, which they've been doing that for the last almost 10, 20 years, uh, the company they invest in subject took some kind of regulations on that. And I think that is not very, very good uh, for American companies seeking fundings. And especially today, there's, technology has no borders. Uh, I, I think China today, it's, Lots of people get scared about China. It's, it's, it's not, I don't think China has the world's leading technologies. In consumer sector, yes. You know, what I think is in everything about real estate, and spending, food, payments, even banking, Chinese are leading. But if you look at everything else, uh, you just mentioned two sectors. Two China sectors. is good, AI and clean technology. What about others? Chinese not leading. Uh, you look at a world uh, uh, globalist um, innovation index. China, as a country, is ranked as 17th. Uh, but the consumer companies, you have Alibaba, you have Tencent, it's scary because their size is so huge. Mm -hmm. And so you hear a lot of that. But in, in terms of industry, China needs a fundamental technologies. And I think China is still behind. That's why there's lots of companies trying to either buy or copy or using other ways to obtain technologies. Uh, but for US company, I think uh, the technology today needs a market in order to promote innovations. You can't just sit in a room and say, I want to be innovate. So you have to really go to market where it has needs. And where's the biggest needs? It's in China. Uh, so uh, you know, this company called the BASF just announced the 10 billion US dollars investment for the first time. Chinese government allowed them to have 100% refinery, 10 billion dollars. And because that's a technology and they put there and, and asked them why. They said 37% of chemical market is in China. And in 10 years, it's gonna be 50. And you take a look at, you ask American company, large companies, their growth is really come from Chinese market. And sometimes they're the single largest market, and sometimes they're China versus the rest of the world. So I think, uh, I think barring technologies going to China to access Chinese market, uh, it's, uh, it's not good for U.S. companies.
No, um, I want to really just agree with a lot of Michael's comments and make a, a few comments on um, the innovation and how I see AI and why I do think that China has a more dominant position. It's not the innovation at all. So in the rankings, um, China has moved to number 17 from 29. The U.S. is number six. And on innovation, um, the U.S. leads and on those developments. But it's the Chinese ability to go to mass production and in the consumer sector that really sets it apart. And whether it was made in China 2025 or the manufacturing sector, it's that ability to go to mass production that really does set China apart. So if you look at, um, you know, uh, compare the U.S. and China um, and in the innovation rankings, the reason why China moved from 29 to number 17 was because the patents went up. They were doing patents at a much um, faster pace than the United States. Um, but the other thing that we've looked at is just that the centralized funding there is so much higher for AI than in the United States. So there are more deals in the United States, but the centralized funding, but it's that ability to move to mass production. And if you go to China now, it, it's not even that easy to use credit cards some places. I mean, it's moved to QR codes. I mean, if you're trying to get a paper receipt at a restaurant to expense at JP Morgan, it can take you 15 to 20 minutes um, to get that. I mean, you see even that, like, your beggars collect their um, uh, through WeChat pay. So the ability to have moved it to mass production um, in, in a Chinese way is really sort of unparalleled anywhere that I've seen. It's not the level of innovation or sophistication. It's that mass production um, aspect of it. Great. So we have li relatively limited time, but I'd like to take uh, just uh, two audience questions and, uh, and then. So you, sir. I think we have a roving mic. Uh, thank you. Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. Just a few days ago here in uh, Washington, D.C., General Dunford, uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, said that he was very unhappy with Google having their AI research operation in mainland China and that he called on the company to get it out of there because it was a national security threat. Now, I think this is a pretty extraordinary statement coming from our highest ranking military officer. I wonder if you could comment on how that's been received in China. And we'll take a second question at the same time so that we save time. And then the panelists can respond to both. No other questions? Okay, we have one more question. Hi, my name is Patrick Lozada. I work at Albright Stonebridge Group. Uh, my question has to do with foreign multinationals doing research in China. Uh, AmCham Shanghai did a research survey of their members and found that only, I think, around 11.8% were doing research in China in cutting-edge areas, um, while most were focused primarily on adapting products that already existed globally to the China market. So why aren't multinationals, what, what's holding them back, in your view, from really chasing innovation? Thank you. So whoever cares to answer. I, I don't know that uh, situation, but I think uh, Google has a platform, and I think it's called TensorFlow. You know, there's it's it's like a it's it's a middleware that allowing everybody using their technology to develop AI applications. Uh, so, and I think U.S. is very strong, and and, and I think uh, uh, Microsoft also has a, this platform. Uh, technology is really about application speed, and so I think now it's open innovation. We call co-innovation. 
is that if you supply people a platform that people uh, will using it, it's like a GitHub, you know, Microsoft just paid $7.8 billion, $7 billion to buy. And China is actually is uh, what I call a, a deep place. It's because sheer size, and there's a lot of activities in that area. So I think, uh, uh, I, I, I hope that's, but the Google is, is not actually operating in China in many yeah. big areas. So I, I think their platform is open for people to, to develop it. Just like uh, Apple has uh, apps, letting everybody to create apps to have people to download. So I think that's lots of coming from the fear, and you really have to understand what level of AI is using. AI is software. What's the best software country in the, in the world? It's the United States, especially enterprises softwares. Um, and Chinese uh, are, are not very good. I think we're catching up. I mean, China is catching up, but it's not very good in softwares. In terms of uh, innovations, I, uh, I think I asked some big companies, uh, innovation in China, uh, if you ask big companies, they, they, they committed, they said that we're in China for China. And I have to answer you for yourself because, and the question is why large companies to be China? If you ask them, they tell you one big market, secondly, the speed of uh, commercialization or scale up. And third is uh, digitization. And they think that we have to be in China in order to understand. and. Uh, how, how fast the market is and how quickly. And I think uh, the Chinese speed is scary. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, and I, you know, I just want to, you know, Michael and I have so many of the, the same views, but I also just wanted to point as far as the barriers that, I mean, the foreign direct investment ownership in the broad internet market um, is technically unachievable um, in China. So you can only um, enter the information service industry like through these minority joint ventures with less than a 50% stake and has all these other requirements. So, you know, in the opening introduction, we talked a lot about the great firewall. So you've had that for 20 years to screen and block information and websites that are considered inappropriate by the Chinese authorities. And I think some of you probably have seen all the articles that they have put things like if you have pink hair, they put like a little blur over it um, right now um, on other things that they're blocking. But um, what you've had is that, you know, yeah, Google has things that they have done in China, but they've also stopped some of the projects because they either had pressure from the, the um, public or, you know, they, they had to make certain compromises they weren't necessarily willing to do. So I think it's unclear how much China will open its internet services um, to U.S. operators. And, you know, even if they do open to that market, you have just such, um, big, um, you know, you, you have such big market share by some of the local Chinese providers that I'm not so sure, that, that seems to me like it's a big obstacle for U.S. companies to succeed. And you can see that there are a number of failures where like eBay and Amazon have pulled back some of this because they're seeing that they can't actually compete locally given the size of some of the Chinese providers. So some of this is China's own rules that make it, you know, um, you know broad operating in that internet space is technically not achievable right now. Uh, I don't think we need to worry about uh, these uh, competitions about technology. Uh, things come, they will come, and uh, there's no way you can block it. So uh, maybe today, but uh, if we look into five years from today, ten years from today, it will come, it will happen. So I'll just uh, sum up some of the 
vibrant discussions so far with some parting thoughts. Uh, the first is it's pretty clear that China has this thriving ecosystem with the state, big tech companies, and, um, and other investors, similar to like the United States, PE, NVC investors. So it's not a place where you have to rely on, say, state-owned banks to fund innovation. There are still plenty of options abroad for Chinese firms, successful Chinese firms, to raise capital abroad, but also increasingly channels for them to raise in China, and it'll be exciting to see what happens there. The second is that uh, what seems to be a, ch a Chinese special characteristic is the role of the large tech companies, that they're investing not only outside of China funding innovation, but also significantly in China, and that's a little bit more of a complicated relationship than a traditional investor, because they also ink these strategic partnerships and you get access to kind of Tencent or Alibaba's platforms. And then finally, that CFIUS is this big risk, uh, at least in the short term, perceived on the Chinese side, but that it seems that these technologies are going to move around the world no matter how many national security folks try to uh, keep them isolated and on one side. So with that, I'd like to thank our panelists for coming here and thank the audience for your attention. Thank you. Good afternoon. While you're taking your seats, we're going to begin. Um, we've got a jam-packed uh, session for you today, and we don't want to waste a minute. So innovation uh, and execution is the subject of our panel, and I'm told by Scott just a second ago that innovation is the main topic, and execution is what happens to me if I don't do a good job as moderator. Um, you know. The innovation has been, uh, you know, I started studying Chinese in the 1970s, and I remember a book by Joseph Needham mm -hmm. talking about Chinese science and technology. And uh, if you look back at that, you realize that this is a civilization that's been innovative for thousands of years, and it's innovative again. Um, on my first trip to China in 1974, however, the only innovation was the Cultural Revolution, and that was going nowhere as fast. Uh, but uh, it's, it's this drive for knowledge, and this, uh, one of the things that I think about um, when I think of China is, is education and a thirst for knowledge. When I first left graduate uh, school to come to Washington, D.C. in 1980, I had the privilege of interpreting uh, for the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was signing up a deal with the Chinese Encyclopedia Publishing House to translate the entire encyclopedia into Chinese. This was a, um, a project that was personally signed off by Deng Xiaoping. And uh, why was that necessary? Well, because there was a lot of controversial things in that, in that encyclopedia. Big section on Marxism, for example. What do you say about it? Do you allow that to be translated? Well, uh, it was translated. It was a big project. And I've been thinking about education and been involved with it ever since. Um, so, my goal here on this panel is to create some chaos or to ensure that chaos uh, exists. Um, there's a type of jingjie, a kind of a place that you can get to in China called nandu hutu. You know, it's the confusion of, that's really hard to achieve. And we're going to try to achieve some confusion here because it is a huge subject. Um, to start off, I'd like to, to ask uh, my friend Steve Chapman, who is here only because he's a fellow Minnesotan. No, I'm just kidding. He is a fellow Minnesotan, um, but he may have the um, he may have the most street cred in terms of uh, time with a particular uh, an individual company. He's been with Cummins since uh, 1980. 
six, is five. it thir 85, it's 34 years already. So Steve's been in, in China observing uh, innovation uh, from that perspective all this time, and I'd like to have you lead off, Steve, with a couple of comments about your perspective, thanks. Good, thank you. Uh, I was actually with Green Giant in China before that, so my time started in 1979. Uh, wow. so. Um, but that wasn't terribly innovative, I would have to say. Um, the, um, uh, you think of diesel engines, which is our primary core product. You don't think of something terribly innovative. Uh, this year's our 100th anniversary. We've been focusing on diesel engines the entire time. But in fact, it is quite highly innovative. Uh, the environment, I think, that we've been most challenged with started in uh, roughly 2008 and 2009 when uh, the Chinese government, like the US government and European governments before, started implementing emission standards. And that forced, forced manufacturers to really innovate in their product to meet the standards. Now for us, uh, our first reaction was, it's a European type standard, let's just bring the technology from Europe and not do anything with it. And we quickly discovered we were probably 20 to 30% too expensive. So uh, following, uh, if you've read some of Clayton Christensen's books on uh, innovation, following his definition, we started shooting for suitable functionality at lower costs, targeting overlooked segments, which in our case were major manufacturers who really wanted to meet the standards not just sort of scoot around the standards, but really meet the standards, and then eventually deliver uh, performance for the mainstream markets. So we, uh, we started doing that, and I, I think the real positive thing that we've discovered in it is we could do it in a collaborative environment. Um, all our work is done within joint ventures in China. All our diesel engine, we have six diesel engine joint ventures there. Uh, we do it collaboratively. It's paid, a lot of the development's paid by the joint venture. And then Cummins does a lot of the work, but now our leadership of all our uh, new products is actually based in, in Wuhan. So we have a tech center with 300 engineers, uh, the technical product leads that we use for innovative products. And what I mean by innovative products in our case is meeting these standards, not like we did in Europe, but bringing the advanced knowledge of Cummins that we've you know, developed over the last six to 10 years, say, since the last time the standards were implemented, and apply it to the current problems. But our technical product leads, we have 12 new products, more than we ever introduced in the United States at the same time, and 10 of the leads are Chinese, based in Wuhan. The other, one lead is Korean, one lead is Indian, and they're also based in Wuhan. So we do all our technical leadership work there and then connect with the rest of the world. Steve, could you hold that thought? I want to just ask mm -hmm. you a quick question. Are you optimistic about the future of Cummins with the current environment that we're in and your, how yeah, it looks Yeah, I am because uh, I, I'd say definitely optimistic. Um, we're focusing not just on diesel product, but electrified powertrains or electric vehicles, fuel cells, and doing that development work as well. And by the way, it's done cooperatively between the US and our Chinese organization. That's, that's great to hear. Piper. You are do, doing technologies that I don't even understand. And I, I want her to be the other bookend of this conversation. What are you doing and what are these things and what does it mean? So, um, hi everyone, um, I'm, I'm Piper and I uh, started a company um, that's working in, I think, converging artificial intelligence with artificial life principles, which are very strange to most of you. Um, I think 15 years ago, we thought artificial intelligence was very strange. We never would have thought that we are where we are right now. 
with the uh, developments in, in AI. So I'm right in the middle of a, an interesting spot after having been in China running um, management and um, advisory and consulting for various companies and, and leaving uh, a, a very large conglomerate um, and moving into this interesting new space after I met some scientists who had been working like the AI sector, but in artificial life-like principles dating back 25, 30 years. And these guys were out of uh, you know, New Mexico and really bright, incredible, complex systems scientists. So you know, being in business, um, it's time to think about the next 10 years and what's happening in the next 10 years. And there are some really interesting developments happening uh, that will revolutionize drug discovery um, in the space that I'm in, um, biotechs and bio, robotics, um, adaptive materials, um, you know, materials, smart functional materials that will have adaptive response ability. So these are very nanoscale things that people don't understand, but we really need to have a conversation about who's doing this type of stuff, where, how, with what funding, um, with what support, and with what regulatory environment. So that's why I'm excited to be here today. So Piper, on the regulatory environment, I mean, are there people in the government here in the United States who understand what you've what you're doing? I don't know yet because I'm so busy getting this startup right. up and Maybe running that all I at, haven't. Maybe they're at DARPA, uh, but how are they going to regulate you? We have talked to DARPA. I, we, you know, that's the good question. How are they going to reg regulate any of these companies doing what they're doing? And so we have a really strong ethics team um, who's been working with my lead scientist going back, again, 30 years, um, who's, who's written the good, bad, and the ugly of some of these very small nano bio uh, molecular machines that are coming that will do things like personalized medicine so that you can basically um, rely on your own system and your own DNA to uh, take care of your body and these are these are incredible advances that I think that CSIS is going to be writing a book or publishing an article on yeah bio pharma advances in these area biotech so we'll, I'll look forward to reading that well, let's but, hold, yes. hold that thought because that ethics, as we look at new technologies, artificial intelligence, biopharma, you know, we can easily imagine a, a nightmare world in the future where we become, you know, the guys that repair the robots, and that's about it. Um, I hope not. So let's, but that's with any tech, any new any new technology, right? You have positives and negatives. You have the bright side and you have dark side, and that's what we've got to be just cognizant of here moving forward. Good. I, my next uh, panelist, Pini, is an old friend, and he is in, he's uh, running a very successful company in the United States whose parent uh, launched in Hangzhou making universal joints, which is what wanxiang means, for those of you who know Chinese. Um, and, and yet his company now is involved in a lot of high tech, and you, make, you, you own a company that uh, makes super cool electric sports cars called Karma. What are you, when you think of innovation, uh, in the U.S. versus China, what comes to mind for you? Sure. So I, I would say, first of all, you know, here probably we have less chaos, <laughs> if you want to talk about chaos. However, on the other side, you know, innovation is not just about regulation, which is very important, but it's also about the speed. So I would say, you know, again, this is just my belief. Innovation by itself is not just a religion. At the end, it's all about making money. <laughs> so when it comes to making money, 
now the business environment is critically important. And the, the, the dynamic that happens in China, from my point of view, is uh, whether it's you call scary or you can call this is a very impressive. And we do see the changes in China. And uh, you know, almost every time, I just give you an example. I was in China two years ago, and I was taking a taxi from uh, my hotel to the office. And uh, it was a short distance, so I think it was like a 20 RMB or whatever. And then when I, you know, got there and I say, hey, here's the 100 RMB bill. And the driver looked at me like, like I was the alien. And he say, what? I say, here's the 100 RMB. <laughs> Can you give me the change? He said, no, we don't use cash. I said, okay, no worry. I gave you my credit card. So I gave him a credit card. He said, no, there's no credit card. So I say, what do you want? He said, do you have uh, this, uh, I don't know, yeah, WeChat or, or, or Alipay. Alipay, whatever. And I say, yeah, I heard that, but I said, I, I don't. Then, and then, you know, he let me go without paying anything. So, <laughs> so anyway, so, so this is the, you know, I'm from Hangzhou, obviously, you know, John, you know that. So there is a lot of changes in China. i just give you an example. 2015, I think, China, the patent application in China was about 300,000 a year, similar to the United States. And the 2017 USA is about the same, China is 1.7 million. So there is a lot of dynamic there. However, there is an issue there, it's about the protection. So that is the chaos piece I was talking about. That's a, also, you know, so almost you're trying to balance out. You want to be in the market, but you don't want to lose the technology. How do you want to protect yourself? And our own brand, you know, we have a brand in China called QC. I have seen many, many different boxes with the same graph called OC, CO, QC, CQ, whatever, you know. <laughs> but, it's getting better. I would say it's getting better, but it's still a challenge there. So this is, you're pointing to something, a, a kind of paradox that you have constantly in China, what uh, Chairman Mao actually wrote a whole uh, essay on Mao Dun, right, on, on contradiction. And this is an issue. You have, on the one hand, the world's biggest ecosystem for the protection of intellectual property. It's the trademarks and patent system in China. The courts hear more cases than we do in the United States. And yet you have investors unwilling to go to China to bring their leading technology because they're, they don't feel that it's going to be enforced or that they'll be truly protected in practice. Is that, a, is that an issue for you, Pin, when you look at technology? Yeah, uh, I would say, you know, uh, China has been changing in the last uh, 30, 40 years. So I would say this, you know, China last 40 years we call economic reform and opening. So economic reform, by the end, means that breaking the law, right? That's what the reform means. So in the 40 years, in China, I always say I won't be able to do business in China. <laughs> and uh, you got to be brave. You got to be able to take risk. <clears throat> you got to be able to try something new that could get you into trouble as well. So that is the environment. It's not just the government issue. It's a culture issue. It's the process issue from the old socialism system going to the market-driven economy system. So that system itself, the change, caused a lot of chaos. You know, while bring a lot of innovation, a lot of, uh, you know, fresh air, but does get the people 
You know, I, I, I can use a very simple example. Here you have a stoplight, you know what to do, right? And at least, uh, you know, I was telling my kids when I took them to China, when they were young, you know, 10 years ago, took them to China, one of the challenges getting across the street, they didn't know what to do because <laughs> when the light is on, when the red light is on, people still walking, they don't want to walk. And when the green light on, the car didn't stop, they, they're scared. So that is, the, that is the environment, but I would say it's a process. I do see it's getting a lot better, and uh, you know, I, 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 I have been very successful shut down two, two of my major customers. One is in Europe, one is in the United States, both due to the Chinese government checking on our marking. And uh, we have a product market with customer logo and name, and uh, that was just a huge headache. The government, the custom in China shut us down. No more shipment. We had to go to the customer, ask for authorization. The Chinese government say that's not enough. They want to have a legal opinion letter. We got a legal opinion letter. They still say it's not enough. They say you got to get the customer talk to us. So we got the customer talk to them. They still say not enough. They want to have the customer register directly into the U.S. Uh, in the Chinese uh, custom portal. So I would say they're trying. You know, I can be the witness on that. They're trying very hard, but changing from the mindset from very innovative, you know, let's move, let's move, let's move. You know, here I always say, when you want to cross the bridge, across uh, the river, there's a bridge. You just get on the bridge, you cross it. In China, we all know the Deng Xiaoping's famous saying, uh, find the stepstone first before, <laughs> and, uh, but you're gonna get wet, you know. That's the way you get across the uh, river. But it is there today, but I think, uh, you know, I would say uh, it is getting Everybody understand, you know, without those protection, the innovation is not going to happen. So that this, is the this fundamental. Is, and this is a great segue to, to John Neufer, who's head of the uh, Semiconductor Industry Association. You're talking massive investments of capital and technology. You can't operate in the gray area. Is that true? Is that a fair statement uh, for your companies? Uh, if you don't know if you're going to get protected, you may not make those investments? Yeah, thank, thanks, John. And also, uh, just stepping back, uh, thanks, Scott and Craig, for risking putting me on this panel. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so IP is the lifeblood of the semiconductor industry. These ridiculously complicated chips that power everything that has an electric charge now um, are just loaded with IP, and that's the lifeblood for us. And uh, an environment where IP is not fully protected and enforced is not a friendly environment for us. And I think we've seen a lot of news reporting about some, some recent legal action lately here in the U.S. Uh, taken against China on that, on that front. But um, the reality is um, just as, uh, our industry, we're a little bit different as a manufacturing industry. Roughly half of our manufacturing is still done right here in the good old U.S. of A. Uh, well, most other manufacturing, particularly electronics, is long gone. Um, and most of our R&D, which is what provides tremendous value to these wonderful magic chips, uh, is done here in the U.S. of A. And that's um, not by chance. Um, the R&D that comes out of there, the IP that comes out of the R&D work is, is the, most, the most precious thing to us, and we generally like to do it 
do it right here. Uh, we just do not like to operate in an environment uh, that is risky. Um, in fact, at least another uh, fact is that, well, China is our biggest and fastest growing market. Roughly 35% of our revenues come out of the Chinese market. Um, like I said, most of our production happens here, and a very modest amount of production happens in China. It, it costs uh, 5 to $15 billion to build a fab, uh, make, makes these cool chips, and uh, companies are very careful about where they're putting these fabs and how the, uh, how the IP is protected. So the Chinese, the Chinese government has made it clear that they want to compete, right? They'd like to, they'd like to develop, be self-sufficient, or at least to a large extent self-sufficient in chips. Is that going to happen? Yeah, well, chips is it, chips is it's, it's one of the most global industries in the world. We have sophisticated deep supply chains all around the world. One of the things that is a little troubling is the stated desire to become self-sufficient through the whole stack, the design, the production, the assembly, test, uh, and packaging of the chips. It, it's a uh, it's a little troubling and just mostly disruptive and really kind of uh, not not really grounded in a lot of reality because that's just not the way the the the, the supply chains supply chains work. You know, we're very uh, excited about China building its own indigenous uh, semiconductor industry. That that's fine. We like working in but we like working in an environment where all the players are behaving along the lines of roles that we understand, mar driven by market forces, things like that. And um, one of the big problems we have in the, in the Chinese context is that there's huge subsidies being thrown at uh, uh, domestic industry to build its own semiconductor industry. And that could cause uh, very significant non-market driven uh, overcapacity uh, problems. So um, again, uh, China becoming a, a bigger player in semiconductors, that's great. But the other thing is, the reality is China right now is still single digit in terms of uh, global production. Uh, we, we have secured about, the U.S. headquartered companies have secured about half of the global market. So there's a long way to go. And unlike shipbuilding and um, wind and solar, where we've had a lot of uh, kind of interesting history with China, um, semiconductors are wildly complicated. Um, and I'm not saying that uh, China will not make great progress, but it's not going to be the kind of breathtaking leaps, leap forward, leaps forward that they have in other sectors that have caused a lot of kind of uh, left a lot of wreckage around the world. Right. Steve. I'm just curious, how quickly do you think you know, the single digit market share globally, and I don't know where exactly they're sold, if they're sold outside of China, but how quickly could they catch up and export to the rest of the world? Uh, well, one thing that's ironic about the tariffs that are being put on semiconductors in the, the Section 301 is that they're all being put on uh, basically U.S. chips that are going through the supply chain, and the last stop is China. Uh, and Chinese, we haven't found a Chinese chip that's sold here. So uh, most of the chips that China makes, uh, Wally, SMIC, and uh, other companies, um, are, are for domestic consumption. 
Um, I'm just not going to make any any prognostication as to uh, how fast they're they're uh, in, how fast they're going to be able to grow their market share around the world. But uh, they they have a long way to go. But there's a lot of money being thrown at the industry, and there's tremendous political will from the very top to make this successful. You know, the Chinese government twice in the past 30 years has made a big run at doing exactly what it's trying to do now. But the difference between then and now is there's a ton of money being thrown at the industry, and there's a tremendous political will behind this. Let's talk about subsidies a, a, a little bit now, because I want to see, Piper, in your, these emerging technologies you're going to be investing in. Do you benefit from subsidies on the Chinese side? Are they a bit more available there than they would be if you were operating in the United States? How do you think about that? Well, I, I think my industry is bizarre, so I'm not, I don't know what the Chinese are doing other than they're doing the same type of R&D in Shanghai in particular. Um, but I do, you know, there's a couple of points I would make then just about the March meetings. I think there's the environment for um, getting subsidies is, is continuing. You know, there's another, what, entrepreneurs are now uh, welcome again. Like six, six or seven years ago, it was everything was let's make everybody a CEO and let's try to find ways to fund them. And then it went the other way, and now entrepreneurs are having a hard time. And then the NPC meetings have, you know, really tried to boost them up and find ways to subsidize. Um, however, through state-owned enterprise banks. So you have a private company that's starting up, but being funded by a state-owned enterprise bank, and that company may or may not be successful. In my sector, in particular, biotech's a really risky and, and, and costly R&D effort. So you have these small companies that grow, they do all right, small to medium size, perhaps in China, and then if they can't pay back loans on time, or all of a sudden there's a, a due date that's changed, and my Chinese friends are telling me about you know, such occurrences, these small private companies with assets and know-how and R&D are then acquired by the state-owned and enterprise-affiliated, uh, you know, company, and and that is concerning to the the small to medium-sized growing private entrepreneurs in China, um, and and uh, yeah. Interesting, um, Steve, you're competing in China on the ground. People, there are competitors, local Chinese competitors that are getting free land, they're getting subsidies of various types, access to cheap credit, uh, they, they get in default on their repayments to the banks, they just do what I used to do at Cargill, which I tell them, it's the, it's the Chinese partner's fault, not mine. Is that what you do? No. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, there are a couple different kinds of subsidies in our industry. One, I would say uh, we have some direct head-to-head -head competitors um, that can't meet our quality levels, but they try to compensate by having low price. Yeah. And they do it through subsidies. And that's basically from regions in the country that have limited amount of, like Yunnan, for example, limited amount of industrial employment, mm -hmm. so the government wants that, so it subsidizes them. The other would be a subsidy focused on um, a more advanced technology like electric vehicles. Uh, but I find what they're de they are actually picking solutions and then directing subsidies toward the solution that the government picks, which may never be commercially viable. So I don't find their um, subsidies terribly effective in, in any in any fashion. Doesn't worry me a whole yeah. lot. Pin? Yeah, I, I would agree with Steve 100 percent. And I cost subsidy is a you know poison pill. <laughs> 
yeah. to, to a yeah. large extent. Yeah. And I'll give you two examples. You know, 2013, we bought a company called A123, which was the largest battery company in the United States, listen iron battery company in the United States. And uh, 2014, we bought the car company called Fisker. Both got $250 million from the Department of Energy. Okay? And uh, the bad part is that uh, when industry is not ready, you know, this, again, this is just my view. I don't care whether it's in the United States or in China. And you've got to let the market drive this. And, uh, you know, to some extent, the subsidy could help. But to the larger extent, this is just like a winning the lottery. So I saw the statistics, uh, 65 or 68 percent of people, as soon as you win the lottery, you go bankrupt. Because you're not ready for the money. You don't know what to do with the money. There's no financial discipline. There's no financial principle that you're applying. So we see the same thing. In the wintertime, what you need to do is to stay down and to preserve your energy. Instead, the subsidy will usually say, you're going to hire more people, you're going to invest more, you invest another dollar, I give you another dollar. So that means that when the winter comes and you get, you know, take your clothes off, go outside, dance, pretty soon, <laughs> when the energy is gone, you're dead. So, so that's my view. And I don't think the subsidy you know, has been effective, frankly speaking. Yeah, John. Yeah, uh, first of all, so if, if, Penny, if I, uh, I ever win the lottery, um, I'm going to be fine. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go bankrupt. You're a minority. Yeah. Um, um, so on the subsidy question, uh, for sure, uh, state-directed subsidies uh, can be enormously wasteful. But at the same time, they can also leave a lot of wreckage. Mm -hmm. There's something like um, a wreckage in China and wreckage around the world. Uh, there's something like $100 billion earmarked for building the indigenous Chinese semiconductor industry. There's literally dozens and dozens of fabs being built right now, where two or three years ago, they were just empty fields. So that's been a decision by the government to build the fabs and particularly go after the memory sub subsector of the semiconductor industry. And um, while I'm confident that there will be a lot of money wasted, um, as the process unfolds, there will be potential for this non-market driven overcapacity that will hurt parts of the global semiconductor industry. So, so subsidies generally are inefficient, but uh, and, and they can lead to some innovation, but they can, as I say, they can leave a lot of wreckage behind. Chaos. Chaos. Yeah, that's, we're coming back to the theme of our panel. We're going to change it from innovation to chaos. Um, John, can I just, one thing is subsidies to a company is one thing, but subsidies in terms of how to get, I think, education at some point we should talk about, too, and how innovation is driven by education here and in China, and where the two are converging as well. A lot of students here from China, how many in China from here, and how is that affecting our innovation climate here and in China? Well, certainly one of the things that's changed is you have generational changes. Now the young people that are in the University of the United States were born well after the Cultural Revolution. That's, to them, it's ancient history. They, their expectations for the way the world should work are very, very different. And, uh, but that educational nexus between the U.S. and China has been super important. And it, 
makes one think, actually, when we've identified so many problems in, and inefficiencies in the Chinese system, um, you can kind of understand why maybe Xi Jinping wants to work out a deal with Donald Trump and come and get this commercial bit, uh, situation stabilized because uh, a decoupling, if it happens, if we're ripped apart as um, has been con contemplated, uh, that is a very major disaster for China. And I would argue probably much more so than for the United States, especially at this moment. So, but you had thought, some more thoughts about education, I, I'm sure. Well, just in terms of innovation, you know, and, and China's goals and um, uh, the technology aspect and, and the trade talks. I mean, I honestly, artificial intelligence and aerospace and biotech and all of the areas that are the top technologies that China wants to be number one in, we talked about earlier. Um, we, I think it's important to take a closer look at how, how are we fueling that goal um, in our university system here. And, and I'm just saying that because I'm, I'm in a new system and I'm looking at schools. I'm in New York State. I look at all the schools. I visit all of the schools. And in every single school, in all the AI departments and all of the uh, biomaterials departments, I'm shocked at how many are run by Chinese and how many students are Chinese. And yet I think about my 10 years in, in China and I just don't see the same um, exchange for our students in uh, Chinese universities. So I think it's important to take a look and think about how are we subsidizing or funding education in that very high, high tech tier in this country with our Chinese colleagues and uh, partners, but also competitors. Well, it is the subject of a lot of um, study at the moment. American university presidents are looking at these questions, um, as, as is the FBI and other parts of the U.S. government. Um, <laughs> right. I'm just um, in the trenches and just seeing it and reporting that that's what I'm seeing. And it's very notable in the last year that I've been back now, a year and a half. I want to switch over to a, a different type of innovation. I'm let's talk about management innovation. And I'd like to uh, suggest that this is an area where there's been a lot of exchange of, of technology, if you will. Um, uh, China's received uh, great instruction from American and other, other companies who are well managed. And uh, a lot of people have learned from, from us in the globalization uh, process. Um, Pian, I'd like to ask you what you've observed as you've seen, you know, Chinese companies evolve their management systems. In your own Wanxiang, your now unfortunately departed father-in-law was uh, one of the great innovators in Chinese management systems. And maybe you could tell, uh, what are the, are there some distinctly Chinese dimensions of the management style that he had? Um, where are, where are the two, where is China interfacing with the world in terms of management innovation? Sure. So I would say, you know, there's a learning process on both sides. And uh, I did, a, I asked uh, some of our company who has operation on both sides and uh, uh, do a study about, uh, you know, what is the difference between the management style? So every single time when we do this kind of survey, the result came back is identical. So the so the USA side will say the China side that they are hardworking, fast decision, very efficient, but they are crazy. <laughs> they cut in the corner, they they take the shortcut, and they don't care. There's no process, so it's just get up, and then let's figure it out. So that's one side. 
On the other side, from the China's look at the USA side, they're very professional. They are well planning, good execution. You know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, but just too slow. Yeah. And there's no sense of urgency. It's all about the PPT, not about a <laughs> PowerPoint. Yeah. PowerPoint. PowerPoint. <laughs> all, all, all about the PPT, <laughs> and uh, they call it, this is all most of them are meeting. Meet, they call meeting animals. So it's just from meeting to meeting. So clearly, we actually have a lot. We we struggled a lot because uh, as soon as you start to do the finger pointing, now you got what you got is crazy guy with a laziness approach. That's what you got. <laughs> what you what you want is an opposite, but what you got is that. So so that's what we're trying to break through to say: How can we combine the strengths, not the weakness? But it, it is very difficult. I'll be honest; it's very difficult. And yes. uh, yes. yeah. So so in our company, one of the things I believe is that I I always say: There's no way you can manage people. Just forget about managing people. That never happened. You couldn't even manage yourself. Can, can you manage your blood? You cannot. So all you can do is, that's actually our chairman's philosophy as well, is empower people, incentivize them. Then you can lead them. Let them become the hero. Let them do what they want to do. We have a philosophy inside the company saying, if you want to do something, the shareholder doesn't want you to do, the shareholder is going to try to convince you not to do, but if you really want to do it, shareholder, back off. You're going to do it. However, if the shareholder wants to do something you feel that you don't want to do, speak out, and then that's never going to happen. Because it's all about who's going to carry that piece. So the shareholder can have a great dream, but it doesn't matter. If there's no team believes it, let's not do it. So, so that's the philosophy, and actually that works very well. I, I just give you one quick example. Maybe 20 years ago, I went to UK. I was uh, hiring some people there, hiring one of our, you know, oh, we, we need to look for some sales team. So we negotiate the deal. I say, at the, you know, at the end of the conversation, I say, everything's fine. However, when you travel, business travel, we're not going to reimburse you 100%. We're going to reimburse you 65%. 35% is going to be out of your own pocket. Then the guy looked at me and said, no, this is an American, uh, American trick. It doesn't work here in UK. I said, no, 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 don't take it wrong. It's not an American trick. It's a Wanshan trick. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, let's give it a try, see if that works. And it all turned out to work very well. Because I asked him, do you want to go back to the system? Obviously, you know, the way they invest, is the return is much higher. You, you will screen out you know, all the people who probably just want to kill the time here cannot deliver, because as soon as they get on the road, we force them to get on the road. As soon as they get on the road, they're going to spend the money. So they don't want to get on the road. But you force them to get on the road, the good performer will stay with you. So that works very well. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to comment, uh, our experience is exactly what you just described. <laughs> it, no, not the first part of it, you know, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah, yeah. of the Chinese not following processes, mm -hmm. um, you know, and not coming up with very good quality, whereas the U.S. is too slow, uh, comes up with a good product. And that's why I think our next stage, in addition to just uh, developing innovative products, is actually innovating in our processes. 
And what we've taken is a lot of our U.S. processes for new products and injected some speed into them yes, so that we that can actually perfect. deliver faster. And I've, we have a, a kind of our theme in China we call it become the benchmark. And we're trying to say of all the processes we have, how can we adapt them for the Chinese market, deliver things better, faster, more innovative, uh, and then beat the competition. And I find, I'm sure you do in your industry as well, <laughs> we have gated introduction processes. Like we'll have six steps for a new product introduction. And effectively our Chinese competition always does the first three and then introduces the product, fixes problems in the field. See everybody nodding their heads. <laughs> and what we do is we go through all six and make sure we minimize the number of products. And that we think that's gonna be one of the magics of capturing additional market share. Great. And John. can I just interject that robots are going to make us all move faster, so. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> John. Uh, Pini, for, uh, first of all, there's a couple of uh, team members from SAA here, and I just want to let you know we're not going to adopt that travel policy. <laughs> that, that whole speech was off the record, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and ju just, just a quick question. Uh, you talk about the crazy Chinese entrepreneurs. That, that captures a kind of a piece of your, your business community, but there's also the SOEs out there. Mm -hmm. um, do they behave in the same way as the Alibabas? Uh, I would say yes or no. I, I, I will have to say this, you know, China has a very capitalism environment. That, that's the pressure, whether you are state-owned or private business, and uh, although I, I, I'm not necessarily saying that is right or wrong, you know, for example, PeaceCon. You go to private business, almost every company, they compensate you based on the piece, how many pieces you make. So your salary doesn't really mean much. It's all piece count. So recently, last week, I think I see uh, in the social media, there's a boycott uh, against the Alibaba, Tencent. It's called 996-ICU. <laughs> so the nine to nine for six days, and that equal to ICU. <laughs> Uh, intensive care unit, you know, and uh, there's a there's a trick, you know. I can call there's a trick. I was joking with people. They say if you stay after 6:30, the company pay you for the dinner, so you want to stay. So now they say by 7:30, if you leave 7:30, the company will take you home, because at that time, you know, maybe you know the bus is not at that you know uh, uh, frequent anymore. So, so you stay at 7.30. So by 7.30, they say, if you stay at 8.30, the bus will take, the 7.30 bus only drop in the main location. So you still need to walk another 20 minutes to get home. So now, if you leave at 8.30, the bus will take you to your apartment. So it's 8.30. So now they say, oh, by the way, if it's 8.30, then if you stay 9.30, we serve you another meal. <laughs> so now that's 9.30. Then they say if it's by 11, we will give you credit for certain things. So that get, you know, add on, and that's the reason with, where, why this 996 ICU came up. So, so I would see eventually, you know, working warm people, you know, is not the goal. I, I would say that, you know, I, I think we have a good system here. And eventually, you know, uh, uh, again, you know, you want to develop the economy. That's the reason the, the environmental control in the last uh, 12 months in China had caused a major chaos, shut down a lot of plants. But the people still like it. You know, that's what the Xi 
President Xi got a major credit because people, the regular people, not the 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 alien, you know, the regular. Lao Bai Xing. Yeah, yeah, Lao Bai Xing. They still think that's the good way to go. So, anyways, just just want to give the color. Okay, we're going to open up the question in just a second. I just wanted to ask. Uh, Piper, to have the last word in terms of your th your thoughts about uh, the abilities. Actually, you don't want to talk about this, do you? You said the subject of subject of the trade negotiations. You want to talk about that? Thank you. Do I mean, you want me to say one thing? Yeah. <laughs> it's important that this is happening. Um, the tariffs are having an impact, and that's helping drive change. Um, I think, however, from our side, from the U.S. side, I'd love to just see, as we've been talking here, more focus on the high security, national security, or um, high-tech sectors, and, and the tactics for um, how the U.S. government can um, apply some pressures to really create reciprocity there, because we've got a situation where there are subsidies, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, Baidu, and the critical infrastructure that these companies and state-owned enterprises are going to have around the world and in our country, um, it, it, it just needs a closer look. Um, and so we're talking about trade, but this is, that's my concern personally, is what are the policies to um, really focus in, in, on those sectors? Based on what your, I mean, your sense I mean, this type of a negotiation, can it possibly address these questions in a deep, deep enough way to, to, to set the foundation for the future? Um, well, I think they should be. I don't know what they're saying to each other. I'm not in the room, but um, I would love to, to uh, encourage that the right people with the right skill set are sitting next to them and helping in, in, in those specific areas, and I'm sure they are. Well, sure. uh, let me ask her. We have, we have one member of the panel who used to serve as U, at USTR. John, what, what's your perspective on these things? And this is, of course, nobody is taking notes. Um, no, I mean, seriously, is it, is it possible for this context, for the negotiations, to get into the, into the deep <laughs> sinews of the problems of reciprocity um, in, with China? <laughs> there will be no 996 at SIA for my team. Um, um, 996 SIA. That, that, I see you. Yeah, but it could be SIA. That's where I work anyway. Okay. So um, I, I just think that we have to set realistic expectations. Uh, you know, the a lot of the practices of the Chinese government, the, the, the heavy hand of the government, the industrial policies um, have been very successful from the Chinese perspective. I mean, look, look what it's done. It's, it's been an amazing economic revolution. So uh, to expect that China is just going to throw all that overboard overnight is not realistic. But I do believe that with uh, uh, focused negotiations, and there's some smart folks on these negotiation teams, that we can take the rough edges off of what a lot of us consider this bad behavior. And so I, do, I am hopeful that some of the rough edges can be taken off in a meaningful way that can get uh, us in a better place. Do you think that this will be, in a sense, the uh, ground zero for future negotiations? In other words, we're going we're to have to do a lot more 
uh, very frank uh, conversation, have more frank conversations with the Chinese that have some uh, grit and uh, leverage behind them. Is that going to, this isn't well, over, I, is I, I think that's what this government here in Washington is hoping. And from what you read in the press, they're contemplating a fairly complex um, follow-on process and in enforcement process. I, and that's, th th this is the first chapter of a many-chapter book. At least I think that's what th this administration thinks. So you, you heard it here first. The first chapter of a many-chaptered book is what these, I know, I think that's very well said, John. I'd like to open it up to questions. There's one, uh, one question per customer. Um, and uh, please identify yourself and your organization. I can't see very well from here, but there's a lady here in front. There's a gentleman in the back. And I'll have two, first two questions. Um, please keep them brief, and then we'll try to answer them and go, go on from um, there. I'm Paula Stern. I have my own consulting group. Um, and my question goes to the semiconductors um, and uh, the Micron case, uh, and whether that approach uh, is uh, an adequate approach for dealing with the issues of intellectual property and uh, particularly in the semiconductor area. Um, there are other approaches being tried um, and there are others that we're hoping for, but I'd really like to hear comments from the experts on this. Okay, that's the f our first question of two, and then we have one, the gentleman here with the yellow tie in the back. Do we have only one microphone? Thank you. I I'm Charles Wessner with uh, Georgetown University, and, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Georgetown University. We, of course, love China. The, uh, another qu the, just a couple quick questions. One, qu one question, please, sorry, if you don't mind. We have a lot of people that want to ask questions. It's one per customer, that's the rule. Thank you. What makes you think that lots of patents have anything to do with innovation? The main okay. reason we count patents is because economists can count patents, not innovation. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, who'd like to take the first question on patents? You want to take that one? I will. So um, interesting developments in patent law in China. Um, but I will say that with all of the focus on GDP still, um, you know, local governments are pressured. Um, local governments have to show results for their expenses and their subsidies to innovation. Um, so it, rather than make the big bet on the next emerging technology in a local province that may or may not pan out, they're putting money into lower tech, let's shine up this potent, interesting tech sounding firm um, and then maybe make some money off of that and file a patent. So the quality of the patents is not, you know, numbers is not quality. Um, and I think we all know that, but we should really just pay attention to that a bit more. Thank you. Uh, John, can you take the question on Micron, please? Uh, so we can't skip that one? Um, so, the, so the chairman of my board is also the CEO of Micron this year. So uh, speaking directly to that case is not a career enhancer for me. <laughs> um, so, but, but general, generally, uh, this kind of focused approach that goes to protect IPR is something that's preferable 
to our industry than the kind of the broad brush stroke of things like tariffs. Um, we, we very much uh, support uh, what the administration is trying to do in terms of getting after IP problems with China and get it getting after uh, forced tech transfer problems for sure. But the kind of the, the, the heavy sledgehammer of the tariff doesn't seem to be uh, maybe the best way of doing it. Um, we definitely prefer kind of more focused, targeted uh, methods that go after bad actors. Uh, it does seem to get the attention of the Chinese government, and it also has a deterrent effect on other bad actors wanting to stay out of the crosshairs. Yeah, Scott, do we have time for two more questions? All right. Um, in the back, and then right here, Chris. Thank you. Greg Rehold from Radio Free Asia. Uh, the U.S. mission in China tweeted yesterday, quoting, quoting the State Department a spokesperson, that Article 7 of the China's National Intelligence Law requires Chinese companies to support China government intelligence work. How can we trust our telecommunication infrastructure that are required by law to spy for China? My question is, does the Chinese uh, national intelligence law affect any uh, joint venture company of your guys uh, uh, inside China? Does it affect your operation? Are you uh, uh, compiled to the Chinese government to provide uh, information uh, to spy for China? Are there any uh, cases okay. happen on, on your companies? Thank oh. you. Great, thank you. And then Chris? John, there we go. Um, John, I'm going to pick on you as well. So you made the mistake of saying something that was interesting. Um, you talked about, you made two comments, which I want to draw together and, and draw you out a little bit on. You talked about the money coming together with the political will on semiconductors, and I completely agree with you. Um, for those of us who've been doing this way too long, there have been some previous times where some of those components came together. You might remember something called the 863 plan, which was so called because it was launched in March of 1986. It's about science and technology development. It was followed by the 963 plan because they were so miserable at performing on the 863 plan, they needed a 963 plan 10 years later. Um, so what's different this time? Um, in my mind, part of it is public-private partnerships that we see, especially in your area, which um, were not always the case in the past. And the second bit, I just wanted to highlight what you said about the destructive uh, effects of subsidies. Uh, you know, There's the misnomer that China cannot innovate they may not necessarily win in some of these high technology areas, but they can create a tremendous amount of capacity that just blows up the global system, as we've seen in other industries, uh, solar panels, et cetera. So I'd welcome your comments. And, and that's for anyone who might want to comment. Okay. Uh, the, the, who would like to take that last question first? John, you want to give, take a stab at that, and then we'll answer the first one. So the last question was a kind of a question and observation, right? Yeah. So. Um, I'm not steeped in China like you are, so I, I can't go back historically and look at and, and, and um, comment knowledgeably on the, on the big difference. Uh, what I look at is what China did, if done, done twice historically with semiconductors, and uh, both those times they didn't have the political will behind them. The, the effort didn't have that high-level political will, did not have that huge amount of money, um, and that's that this time it, it feels uh, like we're going to get uh, a lot of um, output in one way or the other. And uh, if you look, we have a great slide that has a 
aerial picture of all the fabs being built. And um, fabs cost between five and $15 billion to produce a fab, to make a fab. And it usually takes about five years from the time you think, I'm gonna build a fab to the time you, you produce. Uh, that timeline is being shrunk in China. And the, the scope of this, the breadth of the effort is, is awesome. And uh, that's what spooks us a bit, because we could get all this non-market driven, uh, over capacity, um, and a lot, a lot of the decisions about what's being built is being done by bureaucrats. So it just, uh, it gives us a lot of pause. The, to the first, uh, first gentleman's question, uh, Steve, or anybody else, are you aware of this becoming an issue for your firm or your member firms in China? We have uh, 17 joint ventures in China. We have uh, also managed one in Russia and worked on ones in India and Japan, and I've never, ever been uh, approached in that. As he, uh, never, this has never been an issue from either side, frankly. Right. Um, but you don't necessarily know because yeah, you're a foreigner. Yeah, don't necessarily know. It's true. You should lie. Why? They're yeah. not going to talk to you. Yeah. No, of course <laughs> not. But uh, I think it's also a facet of the industry as well. Right. You know. All right. Well, listen, we've run out of time for this, this panel. I think you might agree with that we've created a panel that has embodied the three C's, uh, contradictions, craziness, and chaos. And I'd like to thank my fellow panelists. Thank you for your attention. So we're going to take a break right now, and we'll, we'll uh, resume at 2.20. 2.20. We're ready to get started with panel three. Um, we've talked about financing innovation. We've talked about innovating and executing. Uh, and I don't believe anyone suffered the fate of the executions in the last panel. I, they did a fantastic job. Uh, and, and now we're going to talk about protecting innovation. Uh, and uh, protecting innovation, people often think that that's really just about intellectual property rights. Um, but it's also about protecting protections that are relevant for national security including investment restrictions uh, that are related to national security, uh, and as well as export controls. And export controls not just for goods and products, but also potentially for people. Uh, deemed ex what are called deemed exports. Uh, so we're gonna talk about those kinds of issues uh, in this panel, and we're gonna take liberties to maybe go beyond those topics. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, first, uh, Talk, I'll talk amongst uh, our panelists, and then we will uh, open it up uh, to the audience as well. And luckily, we have uh, four terrific panelists uh, that are with uh, me today. Uh, Ambassador Robert Holliman, who is president, CEO of CNM International, and a partner in Crowell and Mooring, is former deputy USTR under President Obama, and previously was president of the Business Software Alliance. Uh, to his left is Terry Brady, who's president of Underwriters Laboratories Incorporated. You know UL because of their logo is on all your stuff, right? Uh, next to him is John Larkin, who's CEO and president of Larkin Trade International, a leading trade compliance consulting firm focused on China and the Asia Pacific. Uh, and down at the far end uh, is Chris Padilla, who's vice president of government and regulatory affairs for IBM. He oversees their activities in 37 countries, and I imagine 
that China takes up a disproportionate amount of time for you. And uh, so we're delighted that all four of you can be with us here today uh, and uh, to have this conversation, which we promise will be interactive uh, with lots of examples and fun. Uh, uh, it will, I mandate that it will be fun. All right, so I want to start, uh, start with Ambassador Holliman. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you've got a long experience in government uh, and in industry, and so you've been working on these issues. I remember the Business Software Alliance's reports, I guess you probably still do those, of piracy levels around the world. Those, those still come out. And you know, um, we, we all have, looked at that data and then looked at China and we've heard about all the concerns and this certainly must have been a, a, a again a disproportionate amount of your responsibilities at USTR and probably even still today. Where is China in the arc on terms of intellectual property rights protection over the period that you've been following them? Um, not only better, worse, same, but roughly what does that trajectory look like? Sure. Uh, thank, thank you, uh, Scott, and um, thank you. Uh, to our hosts for organizing this event. It's always a privilege to be with you and to talk about these issues. Um, in short, uh, I would answer that with, with two ways. One is China is significantly better than it was when I began working with China in the early 1990s on protecting intellectual property and respect for intellectual property. Two, China remains highly selective about when and where it enforces intellectual property rights. Um, I had the privilege in the private sector to accompany uh, a number of the delegations that spent time from the US government in China in the early 1990s, uh, working initially with uh, Carla Hills and the Mickey Kanner and Charlie Barshevsky and being part of those discussions where we were trying to get, the US was quite frankly trying to get China to agree to protect intellectual property. Um, having been in those meetings, which I think were largely successful, um, I reflect that I am quite confident that we did not actually have a discussion with anyone in China who really believed they should protect intellectual property. It was very much something that was being done because the U.S. wanted it, the EU wanted it, China knew they needed to agree, but I'm fairly confident no one really thought that that was the right thing to do move forward to where we are today. I think there's very strong belief in China that intellectual property is something that should be sought after, should be protected, should be enforced uh, various times, should be acquired through foreign investments, through means and time, times that are coercive. So the, the landscape is very different. That doesn't mean it's necessarily easier. Um, and I'm happy to come back and talk about that. I think in some respects, the challenges are even tougher because the scale is so much larger. But the underlying premise of does China value IP more now than in the past, the answer is absolutely yes. Hey, let me just follow up briefly. So one of the things you, you mentioned, not just to cut it, uh, so when uh, I, Chinese use the word innovation maybe as often as they use the word intellectual property rights, and from you can find any official who will give you a long lecture about innovation and how critical it is. In, you mentioned it was selective protection. Is it selective, uh, how has that selection changed? You know, what, where are they most protective? Are they just not selective on those things that are high priorities and uh, they, they want to get, but they don't yet own? Uh, I, I think the selective selectivity um, comes in three ways. One is 
the um, understanding and the capacity in the system at every level to actually enforce intellectual property rights when they're uh, obtained. Secondly, I think, you know, in the, in the case of computer software, which was my history, I think it was, um, we want the software, we want to pay some licensing fees, but we don't actually want to pay too much for this because if you can make a perfect copy and use it in your business, then you're actually saving money by not acquiring legal software. So I think it's a selective decision, which, by the way, is not necessarily unique for China. That's a problem that other countries have. And then third, I think it's selective about um, the type of joint ventures that occur, what people have to bring to the table, selective in terms of Chinese foreign investment in the United States and others. I think they're not just looking for all forms of IP. They're looking for forms of IP that meet strategic Chinese goals. And that's where the investments are. We certainly see that in the 301 report outlined. So I think it's a mix of, of all of those things. Uh, you know, what is no longer there, and I'll reflect on one moment of past history when BSA started releasing our studies, uh, piracy and software. Uh, in China, there was an estimated rate of 98%. Um, and in the first year that we were very active, it dropped down to 96%. You think about that, it actually doubled the, that doubled the legal market for software. <laughs> so in some respects, it was low-hanging fruit. You know, China's made progress since that time, uh, but those kind of problems, uh, quite frankly, were big, but they actually seem simple now in relation to the broader challenges we're dealing with. Well, I, th I think now they're somewhere in the low 70s, so it's it's big. And, you know, the market has increased tenfold as a percent, maybe, uh, but and also in absolute scale, it's certainly a lot larger. I want to talk to Chris now uh, because you're in one of those selective sectors, probably that's that's really important where you've been, and you also served in, in the Commerce Department as well in some of these issues. From IBM's perspective. Um, you know, China's a big market, big opportunity, uh, but, but also faces some of these challenges. What, from, your, what's, uh, from your perch, what does intellectual property rights look like vis-a-vis in, in -vis China? It's better. It's better than it was. Uh, I would agree with Robert. It's certainly better than it was in the early 1990s. Uh, the, I think the primary reason for that is, uh, as, as we had actually thought, many of us had thought at the time, China will protect IP when it has IP to protect, Chinese IP. That has happened in, in the ensuing 20-plus you know, years since the, the first special 301 battles and various retaliation lists were issued by USTR in the, in the early 90s. What has happened is China now has assets that it is interested and willing and wants to protect. Uh, and so for that reason, you see better compliance, you see more payment of licensing fees. We are doing more IP licensing business in China ourselves. Um, there have recently been some positive changes made to the legal architecture that makes it easier to do an IP licensing deal. For example, just within the last month, uh, it, it used to be if you licensed IP to a Chinese uh, company, uh, you as the as the owner of the patent, uh, would have to provide uh, an unlimited indemnification if anybody challenged that patent or challenged the right to use it in China. Uh, and so there, you know, you, don't, you generally don't like to sign deals where you're subjecting yourself to unlimited liability for something that's beyond your control. That's been changed. So now you can have more of a business-to-business -business negotiation about 
I have this IP, would you like to license it? Here's how much you should pay. And there's no, you know, fewer of these overarching uh, restrictions uh, or disincentives. So the situation is better. Uh, having said that, uh, it, it, as you can read in the, in, the, in the 301 report that USTR did, obviously the situation is, is not great. Uh, there are still uh, thefts that occur. Um, it, there are still, you know, as USTR has noted, some pressure to transfer IP. China's still interested in getting IP, but I would say what's changed from the 90s is uh, it, it used to be it was more just straight theft. Now it's a much more sophisticated combination of approaches. It, it may be licensing deals. There's still some theft. It may be acquisition, as we're seeing, and we'll talk about in the CFIUS context. Uh, the, the desire for the IP is still there, but China now has more assets to protect. Um, okay, I want to turn now to, to Terry, uh, sta standards, uh, and ask you a question about standards, which are so connected to, to IP. Um, and uh, I've just, I'm probably unusual in the audience, and I, I think standards are the coolest thing in the world. And so you're, you're, you, d you have one of the luckiest jobs I could ever imagine to have. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about what UL does and, and how, it how it interfaces China. Absolutely. Uh, good afternoon. And um, I'd like to thank uh, both the center and the council for the opportunity to be here today at this important forum. So UL is a global independent safety company that's championed progress uh, for safety for 125 years. We celebrated 125 year anniversary a couple weeks ago. We have about 14,000 professionals around the world who uh, carry out our mission. We're a charity organization, no one owns UL. Our mission is simple, it's to help create safer living and working environments for people everywhere. And how do we do that? We do that by conducting research on emerging technologies, developing uh, safety and performance standards. We have a library today of about 1,700 different standards that probably apply to 50 or 60 things in this building, and, and uh, you'll see our mark probably 120 to 150 places in, in the average American home, and you'll see our mark on 22 billion, more or less, uh, individual products uh, that are made every year. So we work with manufacturers, with government regulators, with retailers, with the trade associations to try to help people manage very complex supply chains. And so standards, as uh, Scott, I, uh, you rightly point out, are, are a key component for innovation and for product uh, improvement because they, they enable collaboration. They sort of serve as the guardrails, if you will, for uh, developing uh, products that meet both safety and performance standards. So, uh, and they, they, help, uh, they help innovators get products on store shelves uh, across the globe. When someone uh, innovates a product and wants to sell it, he or she doesn't want to sell it in one market. Uh, they, want to, they want the world to have access. So standards serve as both um, a way to uh, uh, encourage the product, uh, safe product development and develop uh, products that perform well, uh, but also uh, by failing to prescribe how to do a product, you leave that to the innovators, it gives them maximum latitude for manufacturers to design safe products. Um, it's, it's, a, it's amazing how, how many products in places uh, where, where UL is. Vis-a-vis -vis China, 
Um, I mean, you talked about standards as facilitating cooperation, integration, common platforms. Um, China's approach to standards has that, but in some sectors it seems that their, their goal is more standards as a tool of competition. Let's build something with a different standard, a unique standard. Let's then uh, control the IP in that standard uh, and then push it globally. Uh, we don't want to accept those international standards. Uh, at least that's what, is the, what people assume is sort of China's historical approach. Has their approach to standards evolved as the way uh, Robert and Chris has said it's evolved towards IP? We're seeing a lot of changes in how uh, the Chinese government and Chinese industry think about standards. Right now it's sort of a, as if 10 important dials are being turned simultaneously. So it's sort of early uh, to, to predict uh, what the overall impact of all these changes are, but let me, let me uh, mention a few of them. Uh, one is that um, uh, China is increasingly involved in the international standards development arena, so they're showing up at IEC technical committees where we wouldn't see typically Chinese representation uh, in prior years. In fact, the next president of the IEC will be a, a Chinese standards expert. Uh, and they're inviting companies like UL to serve on their uh, technical committees for their own, uh, their own standards development. Uh, and um, they're allowing, uh, so, so UL and companies like us, we, we have one branch that develops safety standards. We have another branch that does the testing or conformity assessment against safety standards. And again, when an innovator invents uh, a, a new product, she, she wants to get it um, on the store shelf in multiple markets and to meet not only UL's uh, library standards, but the library of standards that would be applicable in other countries. And so, uh, for example, uh, the CCC mark in China, the compulsory certification mark that's applied to higher risk categories of goods, uh, UL has recently be, been invited and approved, accredited by the Chinese government to test certain categories under the CCC scheme. China still issues the certification itself, but they will, they will accept and rely on our uh, mark. So we think that um, a lot of the signs are, are, are very positive. One thing that um, is a bit troublesome and time will tell is uh, China is, is um, moving away from compulsory testing in, in many categories toward uh, self-declaration of, of conformity. And self-declaration simply means a manufacturer uh, looks at a rule and says, my product meets that rule. Um, I always imagine um, if, if everyone could sort of certify their own blood pressure and, and cholesterol, um, the pharmaceutical companies would uh, see a lot less demand for their products because doctors would stop writing prescriptions. You, you wonder whether self-declaration, you know, in that context would really work. Well, Europe is uh, largely a self-declaration um, environment. Third-party testing labs like ours uh, aren't uh, aren't used as much as they are in other parts of the country, and we see enormous numbers of non-compliant products on store shelves uh, in Europe, and it's really a surprising um, difference from the U.S., uh, what we buy here and what Europeans buy there. And now China has said they'll couple the, couple the self-declaration approach with stiff penalties for, um, for misrepresentation of compliance. So. Time will tell whether that self-declaration scheme plus uh, penalties uh, is sufficient to protect Chinese consumers. 
Thank you. I want to self-declare that I have a fantastic 30-foot jump shot, and I am a free agent right now, and I'm ready to be signed immediately. If there's any lawyers out there who want to help me and be my agent, let's, uh, I'll talk to you afterward. Uh, before I come to John, uh, you don't believe that? <laughs> All right. Uh, let, let's, I, want, I, want, I want to ask uh, Chris back on this. In, in your space, uh, in, in uh, participating in standards committees in China, watching, does, does, it, does, it, does it feel different fr from IBM's perspective and standards in China? Yeah, the, it does. Um, we have seen more willingness of Chinese uh, standing, standard setters to invite foreign companies to participate. So. For example, IBM participates on an advisory committee on something called TC260, which is a uh, basic, uh, it's a security standard for trusted computing. Uh, it has a significant impact on the, the large mainframes that we sell to Chinese banks, and so they invited us to be on the committee. Um, that's positive. Uh, having said that, um, I, I, I think we do get the sense that it's, um, it, it's a special category of membership. Uh, you don't get into every uh, into every meeting. You don't get the same level of access to draft documents that local companies do. But is it an improvement? Yes, it's better than it was, but not good enough. All right, John. Let's turn to you to the other side of protection, which uh, national security, uh, export controls, investment restrictions. Um, is, is, is the U.S. going too far in the direction of emphasizing protection, or are we um, just catching up with reality and we're, we're, in the, in the, we're actually finally getting to the space and position we need to be in? Well, I think they're, they're trying to get to that area. There's been, uh, in covering export controls, if we take what we just talked about on standards, uh, as Chris said, you know, U.S. companies are participating in these, in these, in these technical committees. Um, but if you look at TC260, for example, over the last year plus, I mean, I think I've seen 50 new standards come out of there, um, and then all the old cybersecurity standards still in place. So that interacts with us on export controls, where we end up in, unlike with uh, UL, those are only Chinese testing labs, and they're state-owned. So from an export control and compliance point of view, I now have to figure out how to get the product and a technology transfer, which is often required, uh, and access to algorithms. Well, the U.S. companies don't want to do that, and the U.S. government doesn't want to allow that. So we have to figure out, okay, I can't get my product certified in China because the U.S. government won't let me send my technology over, and the Chinese said, well, I'm not going to certify you. So the companies are, again, I, I think as we're seeing, they're, they're caught in the middle. Uh, we try to find solutions to that uh, from a compliance point of view, which is we try to find areas and technology to cooperate on, and we try to find areas where we can't and use the Chinese component to that to bring that into uh, a certified Chinese product already. Incorporate them together and you have a Chinese product, uh, product that you can use in China. I think now with the US, that's going to expand. So it's going to be, it's going to impact technology cooperation. It's going to impact uh, the investment that we're going to talk about. So when you put in a technology control plan, which is what we do throughout the world um, uh, with a focus on Asia and China, we have everything classified, we have access, the Chinese nationals can see this, other foreign nationals can see whatever, uh, and then they can cooperate on the things that don't, where export controls don't kick in. As these rules expand, that's going to expand. So you can imagine going back into your IT and engineering systems 
and reclassifying these things and reclassifying who can have access. So it's good for me. Great, lot, lots of work ahead, but uh, you know, it's it's going to be a really pain for for business. Yeah, strategic conflict is a great opportunity for those of us in the think tank and consulting worlds and everything. I can't. Uh, every day is just uh, the phone. Phone doesn't stop. Let me ask about. Uh, uh, you and others to contribute to, about CFIUS in the other direction, about Chinese investment here. We heard in the uh, earlier panel, I think it was Michael who said it was originally the China price and now it's not for sale price, uh, not for sale. Uh, does that, um, is, is the reform of CFIUS, are, are we uh, getting to the right place because of Chinese industrial policies made in China 2025 or uh, have we overshot? Uh, maybe start with John and then uh, someone else wants to jump in? I think it's yet to be determined. So if you look at um, what the government is saying, I, I've done five of these analyses in the last two weeks, and in the majority of cases I've come to the, the investment or the, the, emerging, the technology is not caught. And for those that are caught, they're for companies that are already dealing in control technology globally. So they already have programs in place to deal with it. It's really going to be the emerging technology list and the foundational technology list that is going to change that. So when I get through the analysis, foreign person, all the different criteria under FIRMA, it's really the emerging technologies. And from what I understand, it's not going to be AI. AI is not going to be controlled. It's going to be like export controls are now. There are going to be essential technologies identified and put on the commerce control list, and those are going to be controlled. Uh, if you hit into those areas, then you're going to hit mandatory declaration, and it's going to impact uh, your ability to invest. And I, would, I just would add, I think the foundational technologies list, which hasn't been started in development, is probably going to be broader and more problematic. Okay. Yep. So um, when um, October, the new pilot program industries was announced for the CFIUS, um, I did a diagram to look at how did those um, industries that were specified cross-sect with the Made in China 2025 priorities. Um, we saw is sort of of the 10 kind of sectors, industries that were in the pilot program, uh, six of those were Made in China 2025 priorities uh, around new information communications industry, around aerospace, electricity equipment, new materials, biopharmaceuticals and high performance, medical equipment, and ocean engineering equipment and high-tech ships. Those were all in the Venn diagram where they were part of the um, Made in China 2025 program and part of the CFIUS pilot. Um, no surprise that there would be an intersection like that. There were clearly some that are in the Made in China 2025 priorities that were not in that list. That doesn't mean that they're uh, immune from scrutiny, uh, but clearly they're not subject to the extra scrutiny. So I think one of the things that the CFIUS process and export control process is doing is really trying to be more discreet and more careful around how they look at these transactions. And it is both more discreet, it's a larger lens, but it is having a level of scrutiny that is not just projects that are identified and come forward, but helping the people who sit in the CFIUS to understand what are strategic priorities in China and how could we look at investments 
in the U.S. that may be designed to foster a Chinese strategic priority and where that could intersect and conflict with U.S. priorities, particularly in those sectors where China has made it clear they want to become the global champions and where that would be at the expense of the U.S. So while each of these matters are independent, they're not published, I think there's a lot of crossover. Okay. All right. Well, let's go to one of those very cool crossover places, um, 5G. I think everyone now in America knows 5G. I've heard of it. Uh, most of us have no idea what it really means. Uh, and uh, you all do. Uh, and it's relevant for IP protection. It's relevant for uh, national security issues. Uh, the U.S. is uh, considering uh, taking massive actions uh, against Huawei because apparently it's going to be the king of 5G. Uh, it's got uh, played a huge role in the setting of the standards. It's uh, got a lot of IP in it. Um, should, should we be freaking out about 5G and China? Or what, what's the level of temperature we should have? How, how ought we to think about this um, in, in a way that would be constructive, uh, not just in, in Washington and more broadly speaking? Uh, who, who wants to jump in and, and get the ball rolling on, on 5G? All right, yes. Um, well, I'd rather talk about 6G, because that's <laughs> So it, it, I think um, one of the interesting things about 5G and, and the issues around Huawei, it, it goes back to a standards issue. Um, you know, we're mounting this big effort to try to get a number of European governments to not go with Huawei for 5G. The, the technical problem is that many of them have Huawei in their network for 4G. And the Huawei equipment, this is a standards and technical issue, is developed in a way that you basically cannot migrate to 5G if you have Huawei 4G in your background, in your, in your backbone network, unless you rip it all out and start over with something else. So if you've bought Huawei 4G, you're more or less stuck to buy Huawei 5G. Um, that's called vendor lock-in, right? Uh, it's, it's not a uniquely sinister Chinese plot to take over the world. It, it is done by lots of companies, lots of technology companies do this. Lock-in is not, nothing, you know, think about, you know, Microsoft Window Platform for many years or the Apple iOS. Uh, it's in vendors' interest to have you locked in. So it's great that we're going around telling, you know, the checks and the polls, you got to rip all this stuff out or we're going to abandon you to the Russians. Uh, but look, the reality is that, you know, did that mean, are we going to pay for them to completely retrofit their networks? So, you know, I think it's less of a, you know, I, I would suggest that a, a better approach rather than threatening allies might be to uh, instead look at the problem of interoperability. And, you know, why is it that all these countries are buying things that are not interoperable when, when they're migrating to a new generation of technology? And should there be more mandates for interoperability? That's probably the, the more likely long-term solution. Um, and I think it's, it's why, the, you know, while we don't have much Huawei in the U.S., we don't have this problem because we didn't have them in the 4G network. Uh, and that's a difficult problem that a lot of European countries now have. It goes to the point about the need for open standards and to pay attention to what's happening. 
Yeah. I mean, isn't 5G in some ways a success of our strategy to get the Chinese involved? I mean, originally they wanted to do unique standards, and now they, they sold all in. They came to the, all these committees with a gajillion people and, and put everything in. Isn't that, shouldn't we be celebrating? Isn't this the victory? Or is this be careful what you wish for, uh, because they actually might learn the rules of the game? And it's a game. It's a competition. It's a competition, and, and they've positioned themselves in this particular competition in a way that's very advantageous to Huawei. Um, and, uh, you know, the, people didn't buy this stuff just because it's cheap. That's one factor. But uh, there are lots of reasons why you make investment in a backbone infrastructure. Um, so I think it's, it's a little bit too easy to say, well, you know, just take it out or, or don't buy it for the future. Uh, what it shows is that they, the Chinese understand how to work on technical standards. They under, this goes back to my first point, right? They have IP they want to protect. They now have uh, technologies that they would like to lock you into, right? And that is a, you know, a somewhat normal commercial behavior, but it also, you know, to the extent that we're concerned that Huawei in the backbone is an intelligence risk, then you know, a normal commercial behavior then maybe becomes something that we should be a lot more concerned about. And uh, to be honest, you know, we, we weren't thinking about this in the US government very much over the last 10, 12 years. Others want to chime in on 5G? I have one more question, and then I want to give the audience a chance to, to contribute. Anyone else about this? Uh, let me ask about uh, uh, what seems like a more mundane problem, but is actually probably just uh, still a huge issue, but, uh, Terry, about, about counterfeits. And how, how do we uh, uh, address the question of counterfeits across not just like we're going to have a panel on, on uh, pharma and all the different areas. How, how do we uh, make sure, how do we make sure we have trust in the product? How big is the problem and how can we develop trust? Thanks, Scott. Well, the problem is huge. An OECD study many of you would have seen a year ago or so said that uh, the counterfeit goods account for about a half a trillion U.S. dollars per year, or about 2.5 percent of all the goods that we import into this country. And of those um, uh, half trillion of goods, uh, the, the leading exporter of those, of course, is China. It's, it's a well-known fact. And um, in UL's case, the only product we make is trust, the trust that consumers place when they see our mark on, on uh, a product. And yet the counterfeiter uh, has no idea what that UL in a circle uh, is, so he'll just copy what he sees on the real good, and we'll see things that come in our country. The hoverboards were all the, you know, the hot item, no pun or pun intended, in 2015 holiday season. Uh, $200 million worth of these things came in, uh, most of which had our UL mark. We had never tested a hoverboard. We had no standard against hoverboards. But someone who was counterfeiting these things thought, we'll slap that UL thing on there. That, that looks good. It's a huge problem. And products come into our country every day. And, and, and not just our country in, in, are made and used in China, all over the world, that directly threaten human lives and safety. So. Um, it, it's a big problem, and we, um, we have partnerships with law enforcement all over the world. We're actually very pleased to see, uh, as China moves from a low-cost manufacturer, continues that transition to an IP innovator, that uh, the China uh, law enforcement and the courts are, are, are joining this fight in, in earnest, um, and as are uh, brands and, and the leading e-commerce providers. But consider today that uh, you know, our customs uh, enforcement, and I was speaking to the uh, Senate about this a few months ago, 
they're still set up to go down and look at large ship uh, cargo uh, containers at, at the U.S. ports of entry. Well, today you and I can just uh, go online and order a product and it gets directly airshipped in the belly of a passenger plane or a, a cargo plane uh, to our doorstep. We're, our, our customs folks are still down at the docks, but the stuff flies over their head in individual packages. And when you consider that, and people don't realize this, the, the passenger, uh, the uh, cargo compartment of a passenger plane carries more cargo than it does our suitcases. Uh, you and I are riding on these things every single day next to counterfeit goods that could bring an airplane down. So it's a, it's a huge problem. We have a partnership that we're very proud of with Interpol uh, called the International IP Crime Investigators College, which is an online free college that uh, is offered to law enforcement all over the world. We have more than 100 countries participating. Right now we have almost 2,000 Chinese law enforcement officers from 31 agencies who are learning about how to spot and take down these crimes. It's a scourge, it's something that affects all of us, uh, and um, uh, it affects a lot of cases the poorest of the poor, as you'll talk about in your pharma panel. Um, people in Africa with the least means are, in a lot of, a lot of respects, the, the most at risk. But the, the silver lining, if there is one, is that, as I said, we are seeing, um, I, was in, I, I was in Hong Kong yesterday, but a couple days ago, um, meetings with folks like Alibaba and Tencent, and they, uh, they are taking, in our view, uh, meaningful steps to join this battle. So it continues, but counterfeits are, I think you, it's hard to talk about protecting innovation without talking about the ongoing fight. The bad guys constantly uh, come up with new ways to, to uh, uh, trick us and we have to stay on and, uh, and, and meet them step by step. Super, thank you very much. All right, let's, let's uh, now turn to the audience and we're gonna scoop up uh, several questions together. We've got folks with microphones who are gonna get good exercise, put in their 10,000 steps today. Um, and we ask you to raise your hands high. Uh, you get uh, a single question uh, uh, and, uh, and then we'll let the panel ch pick and choose amongst the coolest questions. So uh, right here. Thanks, hello. Hi, uh, Shu from uh, Barron Capital in New York. I uh, just wanted to follow up on the 5G point earlier, I think one, one part of the issue is to kind of prevent Huawei from selling to the Europeans or other allies, but the other part is really what's happening with 5G domestically in China uh, with industrial IoT. Uh, that's definitely going to move faster than the U.S. Um, so from your perspective, what kind of equilibriums uh, or what kind of uh, influence would U.S. or the rest of the world exert in, in Huawei or, or China 5G, would it be, um, you know, try to contain them or, or try to restrict uh, uh, chip cells, which would hurt U.S. Uh, manufacturers, or would it just be, uh, uh, um, you know, let them do what they can, and, and that's domestic affairs. So just wanted to hear your opinion on, on that. Thank you. Well, that's first one. We're going to come right, uh, China, right behind you, right here uh, in front, Michael Kwan. Right here. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, that was my trick. It was an unintentional trick, though. Sorry. Okay. Uh, the address this is 5G is very important. I think Huawei already has 6Gs, which I learned. Now, China also buys lots of American planes and the parts coming with it, and it's. I think it's going to be for the next 50 years, and China is going to buy planes. So, is there a way to create some kind of, you know, because? We need to innovate. The technology is really ahead of us. So you have this reciprocal, you know, so, so I'm just trying to ask you if you, 
the standardizations. If you have any way to think about, here's a 5G, here's transportation, which the U.S. the biggest export. Um, how do you balance these uh, issues? Going once, going twice. In the back, uh, one question. Yes, uh, microphone's right there. Just very simply, do you have tools uh, on the counterfeit side that you could use uh, to punish the distributors uh, to make them your first line of defense against counterfeit goods? One last one wants to contribute. All right, uh, three good questions uh, across the board. Um, maybe, uh, why don't we give also the chance for you to maybe make some final remarks too, in addition to commenting on some of the questions as, as well. And maybe, Chris, could we start down at your end and we'll just work this way? Okay, well, uh, with regard to 5G, um, I don't think you're going to solve a basic problem of competitiveness by um, putting pressure on European allies. Um, I think countries will make their own individual decisions. The Australians and, and others have made a particular decision. Um, I think my view is it, it's better to separate competitiveness issues from law enforcement and national security issues. If, if there's a case to be made that Huawei has violated the law or is you know, posing an existential threat, then the US government has tools to deal with that. Um, you know, it seems to me that that, that, that should be, if, if the issue is that they've broken the law or that there's a, an issue that, that there's simply, you know, it is intolerable from a security standpoint that they do things, then the government has, a, has plenty of tools in its toolkit that it can use to, to address that. Trying to um, address a competitiveness problem, which is Huawei is very competitive in five, 4G and, and in 5G, both in China and around the world. And you're not going to change that by a wave of the hand and saying, we don't like those guys. So uh, I think it's, it's unrealistic to expect that we're going to be able to simply um, solve that problem by raising the, the security concerns. Um, there's a lot of things the U.S. government, you know, could do with regard to Huawei that it hasn't done. Um, I'm not suggesting that it should, but my point is you use the tools that are appropriate to the problem, and I'm not sure that that's being done, and I'm not sure how successful it will be uh, if, if, that's, if you only take the approach that you just shouldn't buy from them because it's a Chinese company. Um, so, and I, I guess I would conclude by saying, um, you know, look, if you, if you reflect on where we are with, with IP and technology generally, the situation has changed a lot in, in the last 20 years or so, uh, but there are some other things that, that haven't changed, and that is uh, that if, if there are reasons and technologies that should not be exported to China for national security reasons, then we should identify those and control them. Uh, we have the tools to do that. We have a new Export Control Act, which I was involved in, in supporting on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I had, I said publicly at the time, you know, it's been a long time since we've done a list review for what is allowed to be exported to China. And there are a lot of new technologies, AI, quantum computing, blockchain, that, that the lists don't address and need to address. So I'm glad the Commerce Department is doing a list review. I don't think it's something we should panic about. It's a normal process, and, and I think it's a, a good process. 
Export controls are a tool that are meant to deal with technology transfer. That's what they're meant to do. It's, they, they generally have done that successfully, and I think they do need to be refreshed. That's a different tool than CFIUS. CFIUS needs to look at inbound investment. Uh, it is doing that. Um, interestingly, the cases recently that have been denied are, aren't denied so much on tech transfer grounds. I mean, it would have been very interesting to be on the CFIUS review committee of the Grinder. Uh, investment, right? Uh, a, a, a gay dating website, right? And the argument that was made was, well, you know, they'll get all the secret information that they'll be able to use to blackmail people. I mean, my reaction is, what they need to blackmail people, they got from the OPM hack. I, I'm not really sure, you know, the, the, the incremental threat that Chinese ownership of a website would provide, but, uh, you know, people make those decisions. And then finally, you know, we have these other tools, the entity list, which ZTE was on and which almost ended that company, right? That's a very effective tool. If you've got a company that's an existential threat to your security, the U.S. government has the ability to put that company out of business. ZTE demonstrated that. So I, my view is we have the right tools. We need to use them in the right way. I think to follow on with Chris said, you know, in, in separating out the national security and commercial issues, right? So. A lot of the things in the Export Control Reform Act and the FIRMA flowing into the, the National Defense Authorization Act, um, the Defense Department clearly has concerns about having backbone Huawei uh, equipment for DOD procurement reasons. Um, I think that those are probably legitimate concerns. And when you are doing a program like the Joint Strike Fighter and you're, you've put procurement and manufacturing uh, technology transfers all over the world, uh, I think that it's right for them to want to control that and make sure it's not being illegally accessed. Uh, broadening that, which is the same argument, funny, that we made to the Chinese government over the years, to the enterprise and commercial side, uh, makes it overbroad. Uh, this is what we argue with them on the multi-level protection scheme, and it's now 2.0 uh, successor, which is, you know, you need to put these things in buckets, and maybe um, our government needs uh, a rapier approach as well, which is let's control those things that we really need to control and let the commercial side in a fair playing field compete with each other on, on the different side. So I think it is fair for the U.S. government to tell its defense partners um, in procurement that you know you, you need to follow and make sure that our, our procurement is secure. And then on the commercial side, again, you can deal with that on the IP issues and trade issues and, and put that as a, a fair playing field. Um, I'll find, uh, there was a question earlier about the Micron case, so as a formal investigator with Customs and, and Commerce, uh, I'll speak to that a little bit and then it's my experience here uh, in China as a result. Um, the ZTE, Huawei, and Micron cases have really caught attention, as you can imagine, in China. Uh, we have had a number of requests over the last couple of years to do briefings at the CEO level at state-owned enterprises. Uh, I, I think uh, I used to work for Chris and Craig back when in, in Beijing and in, in the U.S. And I think the only thing that really drove compliance for us back in the day was if they needed a license uh, to get something. That's no longer the case. And they always ask me, you know, what, what do we need to be careful of? Well, obviously, if you are in violation of sanctions, U.S. sanctions, regardless of whether you're dealing with U.S. product or not, you're going to be at risk. Um, and they seem to understand that, and they, there is a growing compliance. The other piece is, uh, on, the, on the Micron case in particular with uh, UMC and Fujian Zhenhua, um, 
you have a non, these are not traditional export control violations, right? This is uh, trade, uh, theft of trade secrets and economic espionage, commerce, not commerce jurisdiction. Uh, but they were indicted those, those are not new laws. <laughs> we haven't really used them in this way. And actually, again, tying them back to our defense industrial base and protecting our DOD procurement. And then interestingly, as, as Chris said, then the real kiss of death was the entity list, uh, uh, which is an administrative action, not a criminal action. Uh, the same thing with ETA. First, the entity list to get them to the table, and then, of course, the denied parties list, which is a violation of the, of the settlement agreement. Um, what, what's going to happen with Huawei, you know, that's, that's an ongoing case. But the administrative tools that the, that the Department of Commerce has um, are extremely strong. And it also kind of leads us to, well, if, if you want leverage, we kind of need to stay interconnected. It goes back to kind of a theme is disconnecting two economies actually doesn't serve either of us very well. Uh, by having some leverage over each other kind of benefits. So I think that's what I would end. Thanks. Uh, very quickly, I have the question on um, distributors and counterfeits. The, the best, um, we, we believe the, the best technique is to prevent the sale in the first place. And so working with uh, agencies like the U.S. IPR Center, which represents 21 different federal agencies working together and working with the, uh, the big e-commerce platforms here and in China, we take down websites by the thousands and, and we use artificial intelligence to look at even things like the, the digital image of the product on the website and you look at the fingerprint to see that it was at a copy of a thing that we took down six weeks ago. When we do raids, we follow up the food chain just in the standard law enforcement technique. We'll start in a bodega in Santee Alley in Los, uh, Los Angeles and work up to a distributor and, and uh, try to put them in jail. And so uh, preventing the sale in the first place, if you want to see something very interesting, look at Interpol's uh, work on uh, fake food and fake medicine. They have multi-country um, law enforcement programs uh, called OPSON, O-P-S-O-N, and In Your Site. And I think we're on OPSON, you know, part 19 or something. There's been more sequels of OPSON. The original raid was so uh, successful. It's got more sequels than a Liam Neeson movie. You can uh, check it out during the break. Yeah, I'll just conclude by saying that uh, national security issues should never be intertwined with commercial issues. And I think the system that Congress set up to try to separate those issues should remain because short-term commercial gains cannot offset long-term national security risks. There are a lot of good people who are making those decisions. I think we need to question uh, any decision that says that we blur those lines or we potentially trade off national security in favor of short-term ec economic gains, that's a mistake. Uh, and I think most of us and, and, and will agree, and I hope we see that the national security issues are taken uh, with the greatest um, um, level of concern because certainly, and I'm not privy to any of the classified information that's happening, but certainly uh, things that um, have the potential to open the door for generations with security risks uh, can no way in any shape or form be outweighed by a company or a sector's quarterly gains that they show to their shareholders, and we need to keep that in mind. I, I think the lesson that I take away from this panel, it's been a fantastic discussion and, and good uh, comments and questions from the audience, is two things. First, don't panic. We've got issues, we've got problems, but we got 
uh, ways to address them. And actually, some things have improved. Some things are still more challenging, more complex, but don't panic. The second is um, use the right tool to address the right problems. Um, and we've got a lot of those tools. Um, and, and so let, let's use those. We don't have to, if you don't panic and you use the right tools, we will be in a better place. Uh, so I leave this discussion more optimistic than when I started, which is unusual for me. Uh, and and um, as, as, as people know, follow, and so uh, everyone please thank me, join me in thanking our panelists. All right, terrific. Okay, we're gonna shift now to our next uh, panel on healthcare. Today, to my left, Jennifer Osika with Pharma. She leads their advocacy efforts in China, which covers the full gamut of pricing, reimbursements, regulatory review, IP. We had the chance to work together uh, a few years ago in a forum that Pharma had supported, both here and in Beijing, looking at a number of critical issues in the process of, of national reform of the health sector in China. I'm very grateful to see her again and be able to cooperate. Li Zhang-Likong is here, the founder of Icon Healthcare Group, founded in 2004. He trained as a, in biology and chemistry and genetics. Um, and Li, welcome. And next to Li is Joan Shen, head of discovery and clinical development, IMAB Biopharma. She's a physician and a PhD in life sciences from trained at Indiana University. And uh, at the far end is Benjamin Schobert from Microsoft, where he heads the AI and research healthcare next business unit. Uh, he's a prolific author. I'm sure many of you have seen his work. I know that we've covered um, uh, in earlier sessions uh, protection of IR, uh, financing, R&D, commercialization, and market access. There are a number of issues that pop up around the health sector, one of which I hope we will be able to dive into, which is, is this sector different? Is it one that offers greater optimism and, and, and um, excitement around collaborations? Uh, why, if that's true, and we'll hear from our speakers, if that's true, why is that? What is it that accounts for this being a zone of higher level of cooperation, collaboration, optimism. What's the evidence? What are the root factors? We'll turn to that. We know that investors are making choices. It'd be good to hear a bit about those choices which look to be most promising. How are those calculations being made? We know that IP, we've heard a lot here today about the weakness of IP protections in many sectors. But if we're going to be optimistic is, that, uh, is there reason to be optimistic that somehow in the pharmaceutical sector, in the medical product sector, that this is different? Is that true? Um, and what are the strategies for continuing to strengthen that? Getting goods to markets, well here we, we have Lee here on the delivery side. I think we need to, we, we need to focus on some concrete examples around um, uh, what it means to guarantee quality, affordability, and access. We'll hear more I'm sure from Benjamin and others about big data and AI, and how does that apply in this instance? And we'll hear more about the intersection around collaborations, the role that China plays here, and vice versa industrially across the two, the two sectors. What I've asked our speakers to do is to um, open with just a few 
uh, minutes, three to four minutes each, of top-line remarks, some, some key core messages they'd like to use to just kick off the discussion. And then after each of them has had a chance to do that, we'll circle back and have uh, a few minutes of conversation among ourselves on some of those topic lines that I just laid out. And then we'll open the floor to you all and um, ask you all to come forward with your own remarks and comments. We may have to close promptly at four, so we have about 40 minutes. Uh, uh, Congressman Larson's scheduled to, to be here at 4 p.m. to speak. So I apologize in advance. This is a slightly truncated um, program, but not by much. So Jennifer, thank you. It's great to see you again. Why don't you help kick things off? Sure, and thank you, Steve. Thank you for the kind introduction and for inviting me to join this uh, panel of really distinguished experts. I'm happy to be here today. And I also want to thank uh, CSIS and USCBC uh, and Scott in particular for, for the invitation. Um, as Steve noted, I lead the China advocacy work at, at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Uh, pharma represents the world's leading innovative biopharmaceutical companies. And since I've been in this position, I've witnessed some dramatic changes in China's healthcare system and, and biopharmaceutical landscape, um, particularly over the last few years. Uh, many folks in the different panels today have talked about the opportunities and challenges in China for their particular industry or uh, association. And in the case of the biopharmaceutical industry, I think we have plenty of both, both opportunities and challenges. Um, first, China is still lacking some fundamental structures and mechanisms to foster and protect biopharmaceutical innovation. And there's still a number of steps that China needs to take to fully align its, its system with leading international systems. But China has started taking, as I just said recently, many steps to modernize its healthcare system uh, for its patients and, and also to provide a more predictable and fair system for all of us operating in this area. Uh, just to provide a few examples of kind of what we've seen transpire over the last few years, um, there used just three years ago, there used to be a major drug lag in China. It was taking the China FDA, which is now the National Medical Products Administration, five to seven years longer to a review and approve a drug than many other international markets. And just a handful of innovative medicines were being approved each year. Um, up until 2017, China had not added an innovative medicine to its national formulary or national reimbursement list. Um, IP protection and enforcement, um, not even really discussed. Um, not, I, I heard on an earlier panel, you know, not much interest in even having that discussion um, and, and difficult to obtain and difficult to enforce biopharmaceutical patents. So patients in China had very little access to the latest treatments. Um, and innovators in China and abroad had little incentive to develop and bring new technologies to the market. But you fast forward to today, and we see a much different and increasingly promising landscape developing in China. Um, the National Medical Products Administration, for example, approved 48 innovative medicines last year, and that's close to the annual standards of the, of the US FDA. Uh, the NMPA is moving forward with approving clinical trial applications in 60 days, when just a few years ago it would take around 18 months or even longer. Um, 
on the it, with respect to market access and, and government reimbursement, we're also seeing a lot of progress here in the last couple of years. In 2017, China updated its national reimbursement list um, after the seven-year delay that I had mentioned earlier. Onco innovative oncology products were added to the reimbursement list last year, and now the government's moving forward with another um, update to its reimbursement list this year. And then with respect to IP protection and enforcement, we've seen the government put forward some, some really promising policy proposals um, with respect to strengthening regulatory data protection, establishing a patent linkage system, and also providing patent term restoration. All of these protections are, are fundamentally fundamental and critical to fostering biopharmaceutical innovation. I think that's something we'll get into a little bit more in the, in the panel. Um, there, but there's still, so, so I'm optimistic. I think there's tangible reasons, as I just outlined, to be optimistic in, in the life sciences and the healthcare space. But there's still challenges. Um, you know, while we see many, the regulator moving forward with different policies to streamline approval, there's still other new policies that create bottlenecks. Um, and there's a lack of uh, capacity and capability in, in the, in the uh, regulatory framework and, and at the regulator. Um, the reimbursement system still uh, has a ways to go in terms of improving transparency and predictability. Um, you know, we, we're not yet at a place in China where, where companies can apply for reimbursement. They have to be invited um, to, for their products to be reimbursed. Um, and then, of course, with these intellectual property protections that I just mentioned, the, these aren't implemented yet. So we want to see China move for, continue moving forward uh, to implement these really promising IP policy proposals that they've, they've been putting out over the last couple of years. Um, so I think, you know, that's a quick summary of the opportunities, the challenges that we see in the market. Um, I think, again, you know, more work is needed to modernize these mechanisms and protections um, and ensure a predictable and fair manner, but I think working together we can, um, we can achieve many of those goals. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Lee. Yeah, thanks for uh, CSIC inviting me to attend the conference. I came to this country when I was 20. I went back to China when I was 27, and I have been involved with three companies two in internet company and one in healthcare, uh, all were listed on NASDAQ. Uh, and I founded two out of three. And uh, my company, um, you know, we are focused on like preventive care. Right now in this country, healthcare expenditure account for about 17 to 18% of GDP. In China, this number is 6%. In developed European countries like Switzerland, Germany, about 12 for China, for 6% to reach 10% just a, man, a matter of time. But how, you know, when we reach 10%, how the money spent on preventive care and on treatment of illness is going to define the quality of Chinese life and people's quality. And we see this innovation for this. In this country, the system is hijacked in some way. But in China, we have a possibility to build the system. And as of today, 38% uh, of the expenditure are still paid out of pocket versus about 15% in this country. And so, you know, um, we're going to talk about AI, big data. We will see the application, adoption of AI and big data in healthcare system in China, I will see well, more than this country. And uh, we're going to discuss this later if the possibility. And just, you know, look at the mobile, mobile, like, you know, like, 
industry in China. In this country, you, know, you have start to have cell phone when each family have a landline. But in China, Chinese people jump into cell phone even without landline in their home. And most of people right now in China using cell phone may never have a PC computer. Right now, they have to do everything on their mobile phone. I believe this is going to happen same in healthcare. So I will stop here. Yeah. Thank you. Joan. Uh, hi, uh, again, and thank you uh, for inviting me in CSIS. And, uh, you know, as an industrial physician to begin with, uh, I felt the tremendous changes in the healthcare systems, both in China and the U.S. And then, like you, uh, Lee mentioned, the healthcare burdens here, and also see the tremendous change in China. So you have to keep that in mind. The, the patient's needs are really driving the market, uh, the healthcare market change. And the government in China has put that as a priority. So this is, uh, you know, for the last 10 years, I have been back and forth, China and the U.S., seeing the changes and really grasp the opportunities. So, um, you know, first I went back and sent by Pfizer. And uh, then gradually uh, looking at the opportunities there and many, many startups to have the innovative drug development really make me think, you know, how we the, the globally we need to promote the innovation. So uh, because, you know, the, the patients are the same pretty much because I was trained as a psychiatrist. So we see the problems are so, so universal. So anyway, so when a new drug is needed, and then that is how the industry is booming up. And then looking at the ecosystems in China, they are bypassing many things which happened here are centuries. So there they really, um, yeah, at the support of the government with the ecosystem, especially with the uh, regulatory changes, as Jennifer mentioned, as well as the funding support. So giving you an example, the company I was jumped to uh, two years ago, it started just three years, and it had in less than three years, it had a fundraising of more than 380 million U.S. dollars, which enabled them to license in the compound, which might not be the first tier in U.S., and then they were able to deliver and dis uh, the clinical development for Chinese patient, yet waiting for their really innovative drug to develop, which is now sent to the U.S. globally. So last month, the company had a three IND approval in U.S. So this is where I see the both ends had the innovations coming together. So, and I felt very fortunate comparing with the other industries we discussed earlier in the panels, like communications, IT, other hassles. So here, this is the easiest to solve the problems, controversials, because we all need medicines. We all need the best medicines, of course. And there are still some issues like the qualities and how we can meet both countries' needs, have the one submission, synergizing together instead of wasting all the patient resource. Because in the U.S., even though you have innovation thinking, but innovation in the pharmaceutical company is not just about thinking. You have to deliver that as a medicine which is applicable to all the patients. So we are constantly asked, can China contributing to the patients when you deliver it, uh, the whole clinical development? Because the, here they are in the U.S., it depleted the patient for the certain drug indications. And when the China patient have so many treatment naive, for example, in the oncology space, and then that's where you know the both sides complementing to each other and uh, promoting the new drug development. So that's why I'm very optimistic in this space. Thanks. Thank you, Benjamin. 
Uh, thank you, and again, as everyone on the panel has uh, said thank you to CSIS and to Scott for the invitation. Um, I want to build on what Joan was just saying. I think um, she's absolutely right. Uh, directionally, uh, this particular space, the healthcare and biotech space, has the advantage of uh, two things working in its favor that are perhaps slightly different than some of the other sectors that have been presented today. Um, the first is um, just a, a, t a wonderfully virtuous um, example of the Chinese government acknowledging that it needs to do everything that it can to bring foreign investment, uh, foreign technology, foreign companies into healthcare and life sciences to improve public health outcomes. And so to the extent uh, you're on the side of the angels, uh, we have, I guess, a bit of that advantage. Um, we are fundamentally working to address uh, quality of life issues uh, at a very, very predicate level. Um, the second thing that I think allows us to, to directionally believe that our industries are, are moving in the right uh, direction um, is that the Chinese government, and I think a lot of the things that Jennifer was talking about reinforce this, um, the Chinese government has come to understand that if it doesn't harmonize its global regulatory standards in this space, it's not only going to depress uh, domestic innovation, but it's also going to limit how much it can export in this space. And so if the Chinese government, for, again, all of the best reasons from a public health point of view, from an economic development point of view, uh, wants to see the life science sector be a significant uh, export engine, um, its push in the direction of trying to harmonize uh, to global standards uh, is very understandable. That gives us a little bit of a privileged position as an industry because if you look at both where we are from, with, from respect of the innovation cycle and the FDI cycle, uh, we're early. Uh, and so some of the challenges that, as an example, the semiconductor uh, industry we're referencing earlier today, uh, some of the challenges that they are now running into, uh, our industries are just earlier. Uh, which isn't to suggest that we're not going to run into some of the same structural challenges. Hopefully, um, as we go through this moment of turbulence in the U.S.-China relationship, our industry will have an opportunity to um, assess some, some learnings about how to anticipate uh, regulatory issues, uh, how to anticipate where there are conflicts between national economic development priorities and how um, rent-seeking animals, i.e. multinationals, uh, how they want to behave in the Chinese economy. Uh, so I think this is, this is all good. It gives our industries a lot of reason to be very positive. Um, having said all of that, um, I think there are some things that we have to watch out for. Uh, and, and, and Joan and Jennifer have both referenced this. Uh, there are uncertainties relative to the reimbursement climate. And, and, I, and I think it's also fair to say that there are uncertainties in the reimbursement climate here. Uh, there are uncertainties in the reimbursement climate in Japan and South Korea, uh, where some of these innovative therapies, uh, some of these in particular uh, um, immunotherapies are very expensive. Uh, they work, uh, but there also is just not a ton of clarity on how any of us are going to pay for these things. And so while we may, in the context of a discussion about China, see that as a peculiar challenge in China, and because of China's economic development, it may well in fact be, uh, it's also a broader problem that we have to figure out globally. Uh, how are we going to pay for these medicines. Um, one of the other things that um, I would strike a cautionary note on is around the whole era of, uh, area of big data. Uh, and for uh, those of you who are not familiar with this, uh, almost every national government is well on its way towards uh, building large biobanks. Uh, 
And the underlying hypothesis there is that if you can create a curated set of, of you know, genomes, uh, tie that to longitudinal health records, uh, you're going to create a data set that's particularly rich that will lay the, lay the foundation for precision medicine, for new population health, uh, perhaps even new digital health um, platforms that don't exist right now. And so those become, those curated data assets become very special parts of how you build your economic development policies. And I think one of the open questions that our industry is going to run into in the not-too-distant future is whether or not there are, in fact, asymmetric data access privileges uh, that exist. And so let me unpack that a little bit. I think we're going to soon uh, run into a question, and, and Senator Rubio actually, I think, did this late fall uh, last year, more or less asking, can a Chinese researcher access and do things with Medicare data, uh, whether that's claims data or some other sort of DI de-identified longitudinal health record. Uh, can a Chinese researcher do something with American de-identified uh, protected health information, or PHI, that an American researcher could not do in China? And so that's, an in, that's a huge question because if there are in fact um, data access asymmetries, um, that's going to probably become one of the first points of friction as we think about the life science and the healthcare space. Um, and, and let me end with, with I guess, two, two thoughts. Um, if we were going to anticipate where our space in particular is likely to create some friction in the U.S.-China relationship, I think it's probably reducible to two things. One is what I just said, which is do we have a symmetrical data access privileges? And then the second is going to have to do just with our respective government's appetite for investment in this space. And there's a subtext on almost every industry that's presented its point of view today, which is more or less um, how do we think about the appetite of the Chinese government to invest in these sectors and the sort of instabilities and the wrinkles in the industry that it creates? Um, how do we think about that? And that's, I think, soon to be a topic of some discussion as we wrestle with what is China doing in, this, in the area of precision medicine? And how how does that contrast to what the United States is doing as well? So, Thank you. Um, Joan, I think you want to turn your mic off when, when we're not speaking. Um, this, I mean, you did answer, you all, I think, answered the question that this sector is, is different. It, there, there are some different aspects to this sector that account for it being more, op, uh, for providing more reason for optimism as opposed to some others, some other sectors, um, but you're all being a bit cautious too about that. You're you're offering a few caveats, and you're and you're seeing into the future in terms of some of the vulnerabilities um, and friction points uh, that that do lie ahead. Um, and it's and and I, what I hear is that this is partly a a, a a function of where the sector is in its evolution at this point that. Um, we shouldn't see this as a, an inevitable trajectory. We should, we should anticipate uh, more bumps along the way, more challenges, um, and things that are going to keep you awake at night. So if that is true, I mean, how would you translate that then if you were each going to offer advice to senior Chinese and American policymakers around what should be, in the next dialogue, um, what should be the priority elements of a dialogue around trying to preserve that goodwill and that pathway that you've each described, what would those look like? And maybe I can 
start reverse course here on this and ask Benjamin to, to, you, to, to comment on that. What would your advice be to those that are going to, in the future, think about this sector and think about what the vulnerabilities look like and what are the action points that need to happen in the near term in order to ease the way forward? Um, so thank you. So first of all, I only get called Benjamin when I'm in trouble, so I'm probably about ready to get into trouble. So maybe that's perfectly appropriate. So I, I, I look for where there's alignment or misalignment of financial incentives. And, and so if I were trying to counsel the, the Chinese government about where to anticipate points of friction, um, I would be looking for where their objectives in terms of how they want to foster a domestic industry are going to create misalignments of financial incentives with other key stakeholders uh, in the Chinese healthcare economy and then in the markets that they would like to export to. And I think if, if um, and I don't, I don't want to step on uh, Jennifer's uh, toes because I know this is an area of, of significant subject matter fluency for her, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop short. But I think there's a lot of things that um, industry groups like pharma are pushing on that more or less anticipate these points of friction. Uh, and I'll stop there. Thank you. Joe. Um, I think, you know, for now, I can, what I can see, people are very enthusiastic in the startups and uh, innovative drug development. However, how is the marketing going to reward it, the innovations? I think, you know, we all have... Uh, like address that in China, this is a problem at least for now because uh, the, the price for the innovative drugs cannot really immediately compensate it to the investment in the innovations. So if we you know, really wanted to create the first tier uh, innovation drugs, how we are going to uh, oversee the, the market, have a healthy, sustainable uh, support for the innovations? And yet, on the other side, like U.S. maybe like overspent in the money for uh, controlling the uh, controlling the price. I think that recently I've been in the ASAR in Atlanta. The the head of oncology center of excellence and FDA, Dr. Pasteur, mentioned, and as long as the quality is comparable, uh, we should encourage you know, cross-the-border communications and have the China uh, drug approved in U.S. to have a cut price. So I think this is where uh, we, we need to work out. There's a lot of issues and can be yeah, addressed there. I will stop here. Thank you. Lee, what, what, what's your advice? Yeah, um, I, I believe like AI can play a much bigger role in China than in this country. And I want to share with you two sets of data you know, why this could happen. Um, if anybody unlucky get cancer in this country, five years later, you know, the chance the person will survive is two-thirds. But if this person gets cancer in China, five years later, the chance the person will survive one-third. So the survival rate in this country doubles the survival rate in China. And that's number one. Number two, you know, in this country, you have 2.7 doctors for 1,000 people. This number in China, only two. In Switzerland, Germany, it's a four doctor plus. Not only that, in this country, in Western country, all the medical doctors are doctor degree, you know. And, but in China, 88% of doctors in China have degree with undergraduate degree and under. And only 12% of doctors in China with a master degree and above. So that's why, you know, we think, you know, you know, AI can be much more widely used in China, not because Chinese AI company may be better, just because China needs more of this kind of AI to support 
what's happening. And uh, we see there's a lot of argument about IBM was in this country, but I do see value for IBM was in China. We are first, one of the first medical institutions in China use IBM Watson. And uh, the main business for my company is to annual body screening. You don't have this business model in this country, because in this country you have GP, so the GP will look over you, you know, certain risk factor, reach you know, certain age, you need to do certain tests. But in China, you know, we have this service, not just about China, in Asia, you know, Japan, Korea, Singapore, mainland China, we all do this. You know, once a year, you do full body screening. You have x-ray, ultrasound, you know, you know, certain people with CT scan, full blood test, and you have four physicians cover your body. And uh, last year, you know, we served about seven million people in China. I mean, it's compared to 1.4 billion, it's still a small number. And uh, we're looking about two or three years later, we're going to hitting 10 million people in China. And we're serving really the middle class and above. And if you look at the, you know, the people we're serving, about 89 out of the 100 largest Chinese companies ranked by Forbes use our service. For, you know, for Fortune 5 company globally, about half in China using our services. And so we see the value say, you know, if you, it's a, you know, people see big burden, you know, you, you know, from 6% to 10%. But if you spend more money on preventive care, just like cancer permanente in California, you pay 10% less for the medical insurance. You know, I've been to May Clinical, I've been to MGH, also I visited the Kaiser Permanente. In this country, you know, Kaiser Permanente, people think that's communist, you know. But, you know, in some way it works. You know, I think, you know, a combination of Kaiser Permanente plus May Clinical slash MGH, that should be the model of future medicine, how the delivery system, you know. You spend more time, you know, more, make more efforts, you know, at early disease screening, early cancer, discovery, then you're able to save money or save people's life. So this is, I think, what's going to happen in China. So, you know, we have some investors over here. One of the, you know, companies, very successful company is Garden Health. This company got listed in this country in last October with 1.6 billion market cap. Today, you look at this stock, this company worth about 6 billion. Why is that? Because they help, you know, people discover cancer at a much early stage. And this also happened in China. So we worked actually, I just want to give you two examples why this works. We, you know, during the process of like, you know, medical body screening, we do have eye doctor, you know, look over your eyes. But we don't have enough qualified doctors to do these services. So what do we do? You know, we're working this company called AirDog. You know, they do, they do like a, um, retinal founders image AI. I, I remember like last February, in the last April, FDA approved the first ever you know, automated system. You can, you can give diagnostic results without a physician in this country. So we have several companies in China. We tested 6,000 like, you know, healthy people. They are not exact patients, healthy people. You know, we found out we were so surprised Use this AI thing, we found out 26% of people tested by this system have actually mercury degeneration. We were so surprised. So, so you know, with this system able to improve the quality, ensure the quality, that's number one. Number two, you know, another company, you know, considered a miracle in this country is Exact Sciences. Last year, I remember they delivered less than one million service. You know, they are covered by CMS, 
This company worth 11 billion US dollars right now. We have similar company in China. We test more than 50,000 people within our you know, um, clan base. 80% are positive. Then we start to follow, you know, 85 people, we able to track of them. 58 people did this like endoscopy. And after the, the you know, traditional endoscopy, we found two thirds of the patient actually do find the like, pores in their corner. And then about 6%, you have ulcer. 0.8%, you can basically confirm a coronary cancer right away. So, I see you know, application of adoption of AI, also genetic testing are helping you know, Chinese people able to find, you know, discover cancer at a much early stage. And one of the reasons the five year survival rate in China, only 50% of in this country, because a lot of cancer are discovered at a much later stage. So that's why you know, the life will be saved, you know, the chance will be much thinner Thank than you. early stage. Thank you very much. Jennifer. Okay, thank you. I will. I, I appreciate. I appreciate Ben not stepping, wanting to step on my toes, but I'm not exactly sure what you had in mind. So please jump in if I if I don't cover it. But I think the one thing I wanted to highlight is, you know, China's finally welcoming innovation, biopharmaceutical mm -hmm. innovation, to the market very quickly. And so we one of the challenges that comes along with that is so all these new medicines are quickly approved within the last couple of years and and then the government is thinking well how are we going to how do we actually ensure that the chinese patients have access to all these new medicines mm -hmm. so um, they're certainly taking steps to address that um, and investing more and covering more of the government reimbursement, but I think there's even more that the government could be doing if I were um, providing recommendations and then the other area is um, the Chinese government has supported or endorsed the establishment of supplemental commercial health insurance. That's not something we've talked about yet on, on this panel, but that's really important. There's a lot of barriers in the market to getting that up, up and off the ground, but um, there are some creative pilots underway, I think, that different entities are exploring to see how a real supplemental commercial health insurance system could could be established, and I think that is, you know, if there's, if the government can take more steps in that direction, I think that would really address the affordability uh, and accessibility issue. And then, of course, with all this innovation coming to China, now there's a stronger desire to, to protect it. Um, so again, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but to, for China to really move forward and fully implement these policy proposals, these IP protection and enforcement policy proposals that they've put forward in a manner that is consistent with international standards. Those are a couple uh, priorities that we'd like to see. Great, thank you very much. Let's open to some questions. We'll cluster, we'll take four or five remarks. Please identify yourself, be very succinct uh, right here and right behind these, we have two Two people at this table right here, and then we have some other hands up. Yes, sir. Oh, thank you. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, independent consultant. Uh, I hope the panel can help me out with this question, but I think I have my facts straight. So uh, Ch China right now does a tremendous amount of DNA sequencing. For instance, you have this company that used to be called Beijing Genomics, and I think they call themselves BGI. Uh, to the extent that even uh, DNA is uh, sent from the U.S. over there to be sequenced because they, have, they can do it at a, at a good cost. They've got great machines, 20 great machines. Uh, so the, the question is, um, 
it, it goes to the question of the big data. I mean, it's China is as having a, a massive amount of big DNA data. And actually, I ran into a, a Chinese student here at a local university who works for Chinese state security. She's a DNA database manager. They sent her over here to learn a little bit more about the DNA that she's managing on the, on the database. So, so uh, uh, could, could you elaborate about uh, uh, what the problems potentially are here? Because you're talking about precision medicine, but as I understand it, for instance, they're trying to identify uh, uh, what, uh, what parts of the DNA contribute to human intelligence, for example and then maybe they could actually apply that. Or for example, with the AI, and this is the end, the AI question, of course, if they, if they sick the AI onto the DNA uh, information correlated to the diseases, pretty soon you'll be able to give a sample of DNA to your AI, it'll tell you your life expectancy, you know, what kind of diseases, when you're gonna get cancer. Uh, so are we really totally falling behind on this in this country, or where's the parity? Thank you, right behind you. Hi, my name is Susie Lee. I'm the North American Business uh, Development Lead for Beijing Clinical Service Company. Uh, my questions are um, very simple. Uh, two gov uh, my question is a government's role uh, in the innovation in this uh, healthcare field, both for the US government as well as for the American government. Um, for Chinese government, my question is, uh, does Chinese current government fund uh, innovate, uh, whatever, um, pharma innovate, uh, drug innovation uh, directly like the high-tech uh, industry? That's my first question. Second question is about American government. Um, does American government um, kind of um, um, put any restrictions on IP export, exportation? I mean. Uh, thank you. I, I wanted to ask uh, about uh, trust. And uh, first, uh, how, how do people in China, Chinese consumers, how much do they trust uh, healthcare solutions uh, from, from Chinese companies? Uh, is that getting higher, or is they, are, they, are multinationals still privileged? And secondly, trust with regard to Chinese uh, going abroad from uh, APIs, you know, uh, the ingredients that go into uh, drugs, the Chinese are apparently large exporters, uh, to eventually, you know, to some of the uh, solutions that Jones Company and others are developing, um, what, what is the level of what's what are the ways to try and reassure consumers abroad including in the United States that um, these are um, solutions that are going to help them that don't present risks to them any greater than we see in TV commercials where they tell you about the healthcare drug and then they they talk very quickly about all those other things that could potentially happen so I, I'm just curious about how you're we're, generally Chinese pharma industry is going to raise trust uh, and, and maybe uh, to Ben, is there a technical solution to helping raise trust? Maybe it's blockchain or something like that. I don't know. Thank you. Yes, right here. We'll take these two gentlemen and then we'll come back to our panel. Yes. Okay. We, um, uh, your company in, in China's, uh, we're a client of you, as you know. We have a wellness center managed by ICON. 
And one of the questions I wanted to ask is really on uh, sort of customer-focused or patient-focused innovation. Um, one of our top people in, in China, a Chinese citizen, had, ca had cancer like you described. A year later, it was treated in China. A year later, came back. It just reoccurred. They sent him to the U.S., and he was absolutely stunned by the patient-focused care. And I wonder what you think is the biggest barrier to making the change. You know, he was in a great institution, Anderson and Houston. But, you know, that, that kind of customer or patient-focused care is extraordinary. And I wonder if you, what is the biggest barrier to that? Thank you. With the acceleration of Chinese CSR, I mean, CSR, uh, for proving uh, new drugs coming to China, uh, what do you see the futures, because the U.S. is absolutely dominating this area. Um, so is there an investment opportunity for investing joint ventures in China, or are you not required for joint ventures? Or any innovations coming out of co-innovations between Chinese companies and the U.S. technologies? So I just want to know if the panels has the view on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we have a question around big data, DNA sequencing, question around funding, both from the government of China and USG, Scott's question around trust and risks in terms of uh, uh, consumers looking at Chinese products, patient-focused care in China, I think that was directed to Lee and Joan, and then this question, I think, which came to Jennifer around joint ventures and the like. Um, why don't we start with Lee and Joan? on these questions that were directed to you. Thank you. Um, I just want to share with you, you know, how we use genetic testing and AI to save people's lives. In China, each year, we have 4.3 million new cancer patients. Each year, 2.8 million Chinese people die of cancer. The number one cancer in China is lung cancer. And we have about each year about 750,000 new lung cancer patients. Each year, about 690,000 lung cancer patient will die. And uh, so, so, you know, when we do this checkup, you, you, we start with x-ray. The problem is when you do x-ray, do, you know, lung cancer screening, 40% of people, you know, diagnosed as lung cancer are phase four. If phase four in this country, five years later, one out of 100 will survive. When you use a CT scan, low dose CT scan, do scanning, the chance if you diagnose lung cancer positive, 40% is 1A, which means if it's 1A, then five years later, one out of two will survive. But the problem, you know, people are so worried in China, and you know, if you base on the radiologist, and most of the time they tell you, you can wait six months, one year later, you do CT scan again to see if it's growing. So people are so worried. So we use AI, then able to detect, like, 30% more nodule by AI, that's number one. Number two, right now, we're working with the liquid biopsy company. Take your blood sample, do a test. Then they tell you if those you know, genes related to lung cancer are mutated. And our latest examples, you know, for a patient with three millimeter nodule, usually when it's a three millimeter, radiologist just tells you, just wait. So we did a test, and it's positive. Then the patient took our advice, did a surgery, did a you know, traditional biopsy, it is positive. Afterwards, we found out this person's breast cancer 
gene is also mutated. So we called up the patient and said, do you have any family member have breast cancer? And she said, her mother has breast cancer, but her mother still survived. Then her husband became so worried, have her daughter and her sister's not wife, sister did a testing, and her daughter's you know, breast cancer gene also mutated. You know, but her wife's sister are normal. So afterwards, I just want to share with you, you know, actually that helps, you know, and, and we actually working directly on this. And, and last year, you know, um, we already, in past two years, we did about 1.8 million people did a genetic testing. And uh, I believe this might be the largest database in this world. You have the phenotype, you have, you know, you have body screening test, but you also have like genetic testing. So right now we are doing research, try to find out some, like, some new target for mutation. And we do find out some, like never report before for breast cancer for Chinese population actually has a problem. So I just want to share with you, I, we do see the value for this. Thank you. John, what about the question raised around risk and trust? Yeah, I think almost all the questions are uh, like relevant to the current R&D activities in China as well as in U.S. Because you know, with the talents, uh, the expertise migrated from U.S. to China. Like among some of those like sea turtles going back to bring in this, the process and standard to China, the like precision medicine become a very uh, normal practice. I think it's just a matter of um, the current medical uh, systems uh, will allow you to select it but it's not universally covered. So but all those major precision medicines and uh, like uh, gene testings are available uh, upon your request sometimes. So this is the, the downside. So it's not like a universal standard. However, uh, like uh, all the new drug development, they are applying the same methodologies for the testing the, the relevant uh, precise med, uh, populations to have a more precision uh, target. So this is one thing. And the secondly, for like in terms of fundings and the government roles in supporting those innovations, uh, I can give you an example of the company we are running. It's the exclusive the funding came from the like uh, venture capitals or the external sources. So and most of them are actually U.S. firms. So that in that case, we have this autonomy to choose where we wanted to do. Uh, but so far, we haven't heard any like uh, exclusive ex restrictions because of the government. That's one thing. And then the other is um, like to, Scott, to answer Scott's questions about trust. And I think it's because of the, the, the startups or the companies in China, they really want to go global. So they are trying to build this global standard, especially with the talents going back to China. They are, the, the, the process and also the SOPs and everything are really built universally applicable. So that is why um, they are, you know, looking at uh, the, you know, building the trust to, to generate the medicines which can be applicable for both sides. So I think it, there might be still gap, but I think down the road, this is the direction everybody is working towards. Uh, so, but and the last one is for customer, uh, like a focus uh, patient-centric uh, care, um, patient care. I think it's coming along with the luxury, how patients versus patients, uh, how physicians versus patients. Uh, you know, there are like a different tiers of care in China now for the self-pay market, and then you can really have a patient-focused uh, patient care. And however, because you know, one out, you know, sometimes like you mentioned, one pa physician has to care about thousand patients. So that's where uh, I think there's a shortage for this patient care, you know, like focused. Uh, 
uh, healthcare system. But again, down the road, the Chinese government is applying for this uh, general practitioners, uh, pretty much adapting the UK or European systems, uh, which I knew I was uh, helping with some of the system. They are trying to apply that in the lower tiers of hospital. That's where patients can have the direct access to improve the current status when everybody goes to the third tiers hospitals and then you have very, very little focus by the physicians for that particular care. So I'll stop here. Thank you. Ben? Um, let me maybe answer Steve's question really quickly. Um, so I, if, you, if you answer the question of like, oops, sorry, sorry. Um, you know, what should we be concerned with relative to the Chinese uh, playing a role in the value chain for how g genomes are sequenced, right? So I think you could kind of stack rank. This would be Ben's stack ranking. Um, and at the, and at the, at the, what I consider the least viable concern is something that I heard at a hearing two years ago where there was someone in the national security establishment that was saying if the Chinese have access to American genomes, um, they can design the perfect bioweapon. And I would submit if we're worried about the Chinese designing a bioweapon to kill somebody who looks like me that's 97% Irish and 3% Ashkenazi Jew, we have a whole other set of problems. So I'm not terribly concerned about that. That to me is, that to me is not a, an, an issue. And then as you move up the curve in terms of things we should be thinking about, there's an ethical question. Right? And we've seen over the last year, we've seen a number of situations where there's a very pregnant question relative to how Chinese researchers uh, use not just data, but particular types of interventions to you know, push, push forward on some interesting um, and maybe even useful technologies. But there's some ethical questions that need to be asked and answered. And then I think the, the two things that we should be spending uh, most of our time wrestling with, uh, one is just making sure that we're comfortable from a national, how we spend our money, with that part of the healthcare diagnostic value chain uh, moving offshore. And, and I'm not taking an opinion on that, but we should just uh, have that conversation. Um, and it's hard to have that conversation in a particularly rational mood, given what's ha been happening over the last couple of years. And then I think the last and by far the most important question uh, to, to what you were asking is around market access and IP. And I think that's what we have to make sure that we're thinking proactively and that we're extracting lessons out of other sectors where there's been conflict and tension and that we get ahead of the curve. Jennifer, you're going to get the last remark for this afternoon. We're going to need to come to a close for our next speaker, Congressman Larson, in a moment. Take your time, but please. No pressure. Thanks, Steve. Um, so I think the question was about collaborations um, between maybe multinational and co companies and Chinese companies. I think we're seeing more and more of that happening. Um, of course, I'm, I'm a policy person. I'm not a business person. Um, those are individual company decisions, of course, any kind of joint ventures or, or collaborations. But um, I think, as Joan and, and others on the panel have said, you know, the, the research and development is happening globally, um, collaboratively. It's not happening just only in, in one market or, or one country, but it's happening across border. And so I think we'll continue to see that. And also in the case of China, there's some different diseases that appear um, more often than they might in other populations. And so that offers different, um, offers different opportunities for, for collaborations between, um, between multinational and Chinese companies. So um, I think that the short answer is yes. I think there, there's, you see that happening more, and I would anticipate that it would continue to happen. 
with the IP transfer. I think it, you know, some of that's a business decision. Um, I'm, I'm, but you know, that that would be something that would, of course, the companies would need to monitor very closely. Thank you. Um, we're going to need to uh, close this panel and uh, and move to the next uh, uh, presentation. So please join me in thanking our panelists. Too. Out of respect for the congressman's time, we'll begin the next panel immediately. If you could all just remain seated, we would really great, greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Of the day, uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, things from the company perspective, and now we're going to hear um, from a few ideas from the government perspective, uh, from a very distinguished member of the House of Representatives, a uh, tremendous friend to me personally, and also to CSIS. Um, we're always very, very grateful for Congressman Larson's support uh, for us. And uh, just to give a quick highlight, Congressman Larson represents Washington's second congressional district. Uh, he's a leader on transportation and aviation, trade and U.S.-China relations. Um, he is a member of the New Democrat Coalition and is a strong advocate for pro-growth policies that support innovation, job creation, and a strong economic foundation. And Congressman, one of the things that's been interesting about our discussion today, we've been talking about things like aviation. We've been talking about things like defense, both of which, of course, are in your uh, district uh, in a big way. So again, thank you so much for spending your time with us uh, today. And then now Craig's going to say a few words. Thank you. Great. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, welcome, Congressman. It's wonderful to have you here, uh, representing the most beautiful district in the United States. Um, um, we understand that you have just returned uh, from China, and we'd be very grateful to hear about your trip and any impressions that you have and uh, any reflections uh, that, that there might be uh, with regard to the future of the trade negotiations. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, and uh, <clears throat> thanks for the uh, invite. Uh, I'm glad I was uh, able to be here, and um, I look forward to the next 40 minutes or so um, of discussion uh, to Chris and Craig. Thanks for uh, being up here on the stage with me and help me, helping me through this uh, this afternoon with some questions a little later, um, but I was asked to uh, provide a, a few comments about the recent trip uh, that um, I led with Darren LaHood uh, to China. Darren's uh, the Republican co-chair of the U.S.-China Working Group. I'm the Democratic co-chair of the U.S.-China Working Group. Um, uh, Darren's the, Darren is the third Republican co-chair. My uh, first co-chair was Mark Kirk, who ran for the Senate and then served there and then lost. Charles Bustani was my second Republican co-chair and ran for the Senate and, and lost that seat. I'm, I'm, I'm begging Darren not to run for the Senate. <laughs> so, um, not that he is. I, I have no idea what he's doing, but uh, it just seems that um, uh, I always have to get a new co-chair when they run for the Senate. So it was. Um, a trip of six members. Uh, we went with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations um, out of New York. They were helpful in putting this together and getting the schedule put together. It, and we kind of did this trip in reverse um, a little bit. We went to Hong Kong first, and then um, and then in, on, into the mainland to Hangzhou, um, home or um, side of the G20, and then the Asia Games in 2022, and then into Beijing. Usually, we start in Beijing and work our way around the rest of the country. So it kind of went in reverse. It actually worked out very well to do that. Uh, this trip was my 11th trip uh, to China. And um, uh, I tell folks, uh, and, and for the members on this trip, it was our first trip. And what, I, what we try to do with these trips for members of Congress is to get the point across is that the, the thing you learn most about going to China is that you need to go back 
you're not going to get all the answers on one trip, and you're not going to get all the answers on your second trip. Um, you're never going to get all your answers, uh, but it's important to go back and, and to go to different places um, as well. Um, we try to keep this trip a little bit more um, stayed. Uh, we've been to some pretty, I don't want to say crazy places, I want to be disrespectful, out of the way places uh, in China uh, in the past. Uh, this one we tried to stay um, kind of on the straight and narrow as far as uh, making it a little less exciting for members. Uh, so it worked out really well to do this. So the, the main message in, uh, in uh, Beijing and in Hangzhou, where we met with uh, folks, we met with the Provincial Secretary Chi Jun in, uh, of Zhejiang Province and uh, sort of practiced our message on him and then went into uh, in Beijing where we met with Chi uh, Jun, no, I don't get all my names right, oh, Wang Qishan, um, uh, Wang Chun, who's Executive Vice Chair of the MPC, and then we met with uh, Li Jianxu, who's the Chair of the MPC. And we uh, had a, a consistent message on trade. Uh, think about the timing of this. This is the week before uh, Lighthizer and Mnuchin were going to Beijing, and then, of course, about two weeks before Liu He was here. And uh, we tried to coordinate our message with the administration uh, in a bipartisan way. There are two Democrats and four Republicans on this trip. Uh, tried to coordinate our message uh, on the trade issue, and that was our main focus was the trade issue. Uh, so even though um, I personally have differences of opinion on the approach the administration's taken uh, um, with regards to China on these trade issues, we tried to stay in our box while we were there, and I think everyone did a really good job uh, with that. And basically three, three messages, that there's a bipartisan consensus in Congress, and this is actually, you know, it helps that it's true as well. Um, it's a bipartisan consensus in Congress about the definitional, definition of the, of the problems that we believe, believe that we have with uh, China trade and China economic policy. Um, that's first. The second is the definition of those problems and, structural, and the need for structural reforms and, on SOE reform, um, uh, market access, uh, joint ventures, tech transfer, and IP. Those are kind of the big five. And the third message, uh, so, so th those are all playing into some of the process and some of the substance of, of the trade negotiations. And then the third message was about enforcement, the need for an enforcement mechanism um, that we would expect to see on our side, a need for an enforcement mechanism. So those are the three main messages that we delivered to um, the four leaders, as well as when we met with uh, uh, US um, or American Chamber of Commerce in Beijing um, uh, and uh, um, just to let them know, you know, how this all played out a little bit with them delivering that message. Hong Kong was a little bit different uh, set of circumstances uh, where we met with uh, representatives from the Umbrella Movement and we met with uh, the CE, um, Carrie Lam, and we met with members of LegCo as well as with uh, Hong Kong, uh, uh, U.S. Chamber in Hong Kong and, and a variety of other things as well. So. Uh, all in all, a good trip. Um, uh, we try to pick a theme and stick with it. We picked trade as a theme a long time ago and it actually worked out from a timing perspective as well, so we got lucky in that regard. Um, uh, but I think it's, uh, uh, um, uh, you, know, you, you don't know how successful or not unsuccessful um, you are in these kinds of things. Uh, these ne negotiations take place between governments, not between Congresses. Um, so we, again, tried to be supportive of the, of the, of the administration's message um, while we're there uh, to just ensure that there's a consistent whole of government message coming out of, of, the, of uh, the U.S. 
of, out of the U.S. when it comes to the, to the trade, uh, uh, trade talks. Thank you, thank you very much uh, for um, sharing with us your three messages. And I think every member of the U.S.-China Business Council would certainly uh, wish to thank you because that's very much in concord with what we have been saying. And so very grateful for you uh, un underscoring uh, that message with China's most senior leadership. Um, can I ask uh, the, the first specific question? And I'd like to ask you about Senator Rubio's uh, report on Made in China 2025, which I think to perhaps to oversimplify a little bit, suggests that the United States uh, should move towards a, much, uh, a more aggressive industrial policy. Uh, would you support that? And uh, is, uh, can we out China, ch China uh, as some have said, or uh, where would you stand on that? Um, uh, yeah, I reviewed the um, Rubio's report uh, made in China in 2025 and, and the call for an industrial policy. I don't agree with it um, in, in a fundamental respect, and that is it's more of a defensive policy as opposed to going on offense. Uh, here, here's the thing, uh, we don't need to out China China, we need to out US the US. Um, we're not doing the, um, we, we, aren't, we aren't taking the actions from a US government policy perspective uh, on the uh, items that uh, China is taking action on in China. Not that we need to, um, we don't need a, a, US, a big U.S. government investment in aviation, for instance. We don't need a big U.S. government investment in a variety of areas. But we need to do better about our foundational policies, and we don't do very well in that regard. We have a serious workforce development um, and workforce pipeline problem in this country, and we don't have a very good um, workforce training and workforce development um, set of policies or funding mechanisms. Um, uh, for that. And if you want a, a workforce that's competitive uh, around the world, uh, we need to do a better job on workforce. We don't do a very good job of uh, investing in our own infrastructure um, uh, at the federal level. We do a pretty good job state to state, but we don't have an overall policy, nor do we put the money behind the lack of an overall policy. Thankfully, we don't put the money behind the lack of an overall policy. If we had an overall policy, I'd be really upset that we weren't putting money behind it. But right now, we don't have a very good overall policy, and we're not putting the money behind that. And so I guess the difference of opinion I would have is, is largely the, the inordinate focus on what China is doing and how we can try to stop China from doing that, as opposed to looking at what the US isn't doing and how we can get us to do the things we ought to be doing to be competitive, not necessarily with China, but with China as well. That's how I'd see it. Uh, that's very helpful, Congressman. Um, and I, let me just say, I'm remiss in not saying at the top, uh, unfortunately, Senator Sullivan wasn't able to uh, join us this afternoon. He's actually taking some votes on some nominees. And my thought was, given how few uh, nominees are actually making it through the system and how many holes we have in the U.S. government right now, I'm happy to have him over there voting on some nominees. Um, I, I, that, I, I agree. I, I do miss not being on the uh, stage with Dan. Uh, we've been able to work together in his short time uh, as a, a senator, guy. and it's been a, a good... Uh, a good partner in a few things. And he's been a great partner to us here at CSS as well. Let's talk about an area where maybe um, the government uh, should be a little more involved in, in how to think about this. And this is an area where perhaps we can say that 
innovation, trade, and national security all kind of collide in this area, which would be telecommunications and 5G, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure you've seen that, you know, Senators Cotton and Van Hollen and Representatives Gallagher and Gallego introduced the Telecommunications Denial Order Enforcement Act that would require the President, obviously, to impose denial orders on foreign telecommunications firms. This is largely seen as targeting Huawei. Um, you know, what's your thought on that legislation? Um, how would you evaluate the concern that Huawei presents in this place? What are your thoughts on the fact that we allowed a strategic industry in the United States to disappear so we don't make this stuff anymore? Um, and is this perhaps an area where um, some sort of industrial policy could be a good thing? Uh, here, uh, it's my view, right? It's not the view of the state of Washington. It's not the view of anyone. Uh, I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone in my district. This is my view, my assessment um, of things. Um, uh, if, if, if I'm agnostic, but I'd be supportive of a bill like that. Um, but the reason I'm less than enthusiastic is because of the underlying technology uh, that goes into uh, uh, handsets uh, into smartphones into all this technology. Th Chinese-based companies own 36 percent of the patents that are considered standards essential for 5G. U.S.-based companies own 14 percent of the patents. So at, even, to even create 5G um, uh, technology uh, um, platform and uh, uh, instrument, 36 percent of that technology is already patented by Chinese-based companies, all right? 14% by U.S.-based companies. So you can ban the handset. Um, you can ban the equipment. But those companies, all of them, who own the patents, including the other companies that own the other 50% of the patents, own the technology that goes into that handset. So you, you can't have... So, so you have a question ahead in front of you of how do you get your hands on the 36% of the patents owned by companies that you don't want to be part of the 5G network when they're patented? Right. So you do that by breaking the law and copying them, or you do that by purchasing the license, which you apparently don't, we don't want to do, or reinventing something else that's demonstrably different so it can be patented separately, but it has to be demonstrably different in the, what are the three or four criteria for, um, for to be to be patent uh, eligible. So th that's the challenge I think that we face on that, and I don't have an answer for that. And I hope someone does, um, because if you want to pursue this, if we want to pursue this, we're ignoring the pieces that go into making the big thing. And by and just fo by focusing on just the big thing, right. focusing on equipment, not the pieces of the equipment, and who owns the pieces that go into that equipment. Congressman, maybe we could talk. Sorry, about maybe there's something happier I can tell you before the end of the day. <laughs> maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, aircraft. Uh, you are blessed uh, to have Boeing in your district. What a, what a great uh, company! What a great uh, contributor to U.S. exports. Uh, and to the only thing that blessed the only thing that blessed us is that Bill Boeing's mom and dad lived there, <laughs> and okay. then and then she birthed him and he stayed. Uh. Yeah. 
And you have many um, constituents who are employees of uh, that company, and they, they make great great product. Yeah. And my understanding is that the 737 Max is also um, assembled in Zhejiang, uh, which makes that. Uh, uh, and it's finished there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I. For, for the Chinese market. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only. Uh, so there's talk uh, about um, the agreement that uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and Lioha are are discussing, uh, and um, oh, certainly one part of that agreement uh, we understand will be a purchase uh, agreement, where the Chinese, according to the U.S. press. Uh, will be purchasing uh, up to $1.2 trillion over six years. And no doubt uh, aerospace would be, an, uh, and Boeing products would be an important part of any large ticket purchases coming out of uh, these uh, agreements. But it kind of uh, makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable about uh, state-managed trade, who's going to be buying these things, what might happen if uh, uh, those purchases are not met or d delayed, if, or if there's problems with the purchases. So I'd be grateful for your thoughts on this. And uh, and in general, are, are you concerned that we might be, within this agreement, be moving towards state-directed trade? And if so, is that a problem? Or maybe it's a good thing? Um, uh, will there be jobs in my district, in my state, as a result of these planes getting purchased? <laughs> Uh, there will be many, many jobs. <laughs> oh, then I'm all right. That's all right. I'll be fine. Um, as far as that goes, I, I think the the final the the resolution of the trade dispute between the U.S. and China will probably have three elements. Uh, no shock. It's not breaking news here. But uh, uh, purchase agreements, so purchases, uh, reforms, and enforcement. Those would be the three things to think about um, in this. And the, the, uh, the challenge that the administration has is talking about the purchase agreements as uh, the purchases as if they were something that were not going to take place otherwise. Uh, how much of those purchases are, are, you know, were backed up in the system as a result of uh, the trade dispute? And how many of them were actually uh, in incremental? Um, on, t on top of whatever would not have happened otherwise. Um, with, so, you know, as an example, uh, well, soybeans is a great example of that. Um, uh, there's there's it's just some question about uh, how much, uh, how many soybeans can the Chinese eat, and therefore, yeah, and how many can they grow themselves, and therefore, how many, how much do they need to buy? Um, there is a, on airplanes, there's uh, you know market demand and there's market analysis both from the two big OEMs, Boeing and Airbus. Uh, they're a little bit different, but not that much different for single aisle airplanes. And so you're only going to buy so many airplanes per year to make that happen anyway. Um, uh, so I don't know if it's going to result in more as opposed to uh, pro promises beyond the existing commitments. But again, it's always promises beyond the existing commitments, and those commitments still need to be um, uh, completed. And sometimes they aren't, sometimes they aren't. So I, 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 the, the point is I have to see myself to evaluate it. Uh, I have to see exactly what 
any kind of agreement is the um, the seven the seven thirty seven is uh, the, the single aisle airplane um, is being built in Renton, Washington, uh, for the Chinese market, but then it's being flown to um, uh, 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 Joshan for finishing. So it goes over there as a I call it green airplane, and they. Um, it goes over there and gets uh, painted, and uh, the seats go in. Think about, you know, and the bathrooms go in and that kind of thing. So think of it that way. Um, so th that's what the that's what the Chinese um, negotiated before with with Boeing. And those, if they're a Max, uh, they're they're not being uh, flown. Uh, obviously, they're grounded. But again, I'm just not sure that uh, we'll have to see exactly what what the numbers are. And remember, these commitments go out to 2025. Um, not today, not tomorrow, but out to 2025. So also need to look at the the uh, the rollout. You know, what's in year one, two, three, you know, through six. I would note 1.2 trillion dollars over six years sounds like a lot until you realize it's 200 billion dollars a year. And um, I forget exactly what the trade deficit with China is this year, but it's way more than 200 billion dollars. 425. I guess it's Chris's job to know that. <laughs> So um, it's not closing a trade deficit, and, and again, is, are these purchases that were going to take place anyway? Uh, those are you know, legitimate questions to ask, and I don't want to pop anyone's bubble, but uh, that's, uh, folks who follow this will be asking those questions. I guess uh, very legitimately, there are also capacity issues. Uh, uh, to probably to purchase a new 787 probably take you, uh, uh, the slotting uh, might not be for a while. Um, uh, yeah, well, it's capacity to build them. Um, uh, the uh, uh, until the grounding, the capacity for uh, 737s was at 52 a month. Um, and it's down to 42, but it'll be back up 52 once the plane's back up in the air. And then it's capacity for your uh, buyer to absorb them. Much like you know, how many soybeans can China, the Chinese population eat? How many cherries can they eat? How much wine can they drink? Go down the list of things. Um, and, you've, and you start running into just how much do folks need. I'm happy to help them on the wine consumption front, just saying. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, like uh, you mentioned, and I agree with your point, you know, you, you can't go to China once, you can't go twice, you can't go, uh, you have to go a number of times to understand. But when you've been several hundred times, like some of, <laughs> some of us have, it's hard not to be a little jaded uh, uh, about some what, of these things. How many times do you have to go to be jaded? <laughs> Quite a few. Okay. Um, but then you're always surprised uh, as well uh, with, the, with the positivity you take away. But my point is, I think one of the key issues here, you know, turning to some of the nitty gritty of the negotiations as you understand it, because it sounds like you had some good discussions with the Chinese side on that. Um, obviously, the main factor here is, are we going to get something that we can call durable, right? Um, and how do we avoid, you know, you mentioned the three baskets. Purchases, I think, is pretty clear. That's always been, you know, the easy part. Enforcement, um, how do we avoid a situation where we sign an agreement and six months later we're at war again, um, which is, I think, a very realistic possibility. And then did you hear anything from them, because I think they've been not so great at signaling this far in the negotiations, about the structural issues and willingness yeah. to challenge and do something. Now. Yeah, just on, on one issue. So for those who are following this, the, um, the National People's Congress uh, did a third reading and passed the uh, foreign investment law, uh, which is a you know, kind of a, first off a conglomeration of three or four separate laws into one title, you know, how we would say it in, in Congress under one title, um, and then some other, uh, other important changes. 
Uh, and for the first time, well, for the first time I heard, uh, a, a high-ranking official was Wang Chun, who's the executive vice chair of the MPC, tied the passage of the foreign investment law to the structural reforms that we've been asking for. Um, that, I thought that was unusual, sort of, a, a, you know, whether he, maybe it's his job to say that or to say, yeah, we're listening to you and we admit it, we need to make some changes and here's one change we're doing. Uh, that's a positive, uh, but, uh, you know, you have to temper that with the fact that um, uh, uh, it's, you know, if we were to write a law like that, it would be, you know, it would be longer than the Affordable Care Act. People would be complaining about, you know, did you read the bill? Um, <laughs> Uh, I think I think the foreign investment law is 50 pages long, uh, and the, the Chamber of Commerce made a point to us that uh, American Chamber of Commerce of Beijing made a point to us that it's really again it's all about the implement, implementation. Implementing guidelines. Yeah, and those can take any form, uh, and uh, uh, and there and there are literal a lot of forms it can take uh, to implement that, and so we shouldn't get too excited just yet, but uh, it's good that we can use that uh, to utilize that in concert with other um, non-Chinese partners in, in China to uh, try to get implement guidelines that actually implement what we would think would be a, a foreign investment law that would um, allow uh, uh, more investment into, into China, more foreign investment into China. Um, uh, and more freedom to, to make that investment. So it, it's just, it, there's, that, that's one thing that came up. And, but on the, on the enforcement side, you know, I'm sure many of you read this as well, and this is, uh, at least one person mentioned this to us, just the importance of enfor enforcement goes both ways. Yeah. You know, the, Chi the Chinese leadership uh, it was really clear they're just not gonna sit there and say, oh, of course, you need to enforce the agreement on us. We're just gonna absolutely roll over and take, and, you know, in, uh, absolutely in America. Um, they have their own views about what enforcement means, uh, didn't get into it, but um, they, they uh, talk about two-sided or two-way enforcement. And so um, that is going to be a sticky wicket uh, as well uh, to, to implement. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the biggest challenge I think we face on that one is the speed with which they play, they go to the sovereignty card on the issue of enforcement, you know, and the, the desire to have two-way. And then also, to your point about the foreign investment law, I mean, I think just from a Chinese perspective, this seems to be the area where they do feel on some of this stuff, they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. They ram the thing through and then we complain that they rammed it through. So it's, it's challenging, yeah. Hey, um, could we shift the focus just a little bit and, and talk about export controls and uh, foreign uh, inbound foreign uh, investment controls uh, in the United States? Uh, a lot of our, today's conversation has kind of been between the, the trade-offs uh, between um, uh, free trade, uh, national security, uh, and uh, our meeting our legal obligations. Do, do so. There's been some changes in CFIUS uh, uh, and FIRMA. Um, I think that we're all anticipating changes uh, in 2019 in export controls. Can we have your views on that, please? Um, be grateful to understand the sense of, of Congress. Uh, well, the general sense of Congress uh, in passing FIRMA was that they thought CFIUS uh, wasn't, um, uh, wasn't, wasn't broad enough, um, it uh, wasn't specific enough um, and, uh, to technology. It went through a variety of changes to get to where it was, actually pulled back some from what was originally proposed. And then it was put into the, 
and uh, defense bill and and uh, uh, and pass as a result of the defense bill um, mainly as a vehicle to move it but it was it would have passed on its own I think pretty well um, as well so uh, uh, the the issue is um, I think again what will be with implementation and what's considered uh, what's considered sort of national security essential, if you will, I'm making that term up, I'm, I'm, it's not a legal term, but you know, what's essential to national security or, or not. And, and as a member of the Armed Services Committee, I'm, I'm getting, uh, uh, well, I'm not getting a mixed message, I'll get a very clear message, I just think it's a misguided um, message uh, from the Pentagon. Uh, so there's a couple things going on. There's a lot of focus on uh, the, uh, especially in with regards to China, uh, Chinese military investment in technology and, uh, and, uh, and the use of the technology, um, AI and machine learning and so on, uh, as a platform or as an enabler, as a tool uh, for uh, the military. Uh, and it, it, it makes sense to be concerned about that, and it makes sense for the United States, the Pentagon, the, our Pentagon, to invest in that as well. Um, but the problem that I think we might be running into, and this is the warning, is that um, AI is like Kleenex or Band-Aid. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the history of Kleenex or Band-Aids in the United States, Kleenex is actually a brand name, and Band-Aid is a brand name, but every tissue paper used to blow your nose, we call it Kleenex. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, we call it Kleenex. And every Every um, thing you put on your finger to cover a cut, we call a Band-Aid, even though there's a perfectly, another, the perfectly usable brand called Curad as well. We call Curad's Band-Aids too. The thing is, the brand name became the name. So that's, that's the principle I want to get across. Um, AI is that as well now. Artificial intelligence, AI, everybody has it. China has it, France has it, UK has it, US has it. Everybody has AI. Everybody uses AI. They use it like Kleenex, they use it like Band-Aids. And so the danger is that, from, our pers from my perspective, is that we approach AI in, on the issue of, when we're talking about export controls, we, we approach the, the technology of artificial intelligence as uh, we ban the export of Kleenexes. We ban the export of Band-Aids. People already have Kleenexes and Band-Aids. We're focused on the wrong thing. And the right thing is, is uh, the brains that go into making the algorithms that use AI, artificial intelligence, as a platform to be an enabler. Um, and, that, and those brains are in people. They're not in, in, they're not in the machine, they're in people. And um, uh, so, so uh, you know, we can, we can, you know, put high walls around artificial intelligence and in, in any company that's based in the United States, and it won't do a dang thing to prevent any other country or any other company in other countries from either developing their own or or, or using AI otherwise. And so, we need to be better targeted when we come to technology because it's, it's, it's fundamentally different than, say, banning a missile or banning a, a radar system or banning a gyroscope that's specifically made for something or other. It, it's, it's fundamentally different than the hard, the hard thing 
um, that it's easier to control than, um, than a technology, which is really, becomes a hard thing but only because of the brains that got put into it. Well, I hope it makes sense. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> As a technological Luddite myself, I appreciate that uh, explanation. Um, well, Congressman, uh, we'd like to see if maybe the audience have a few questions for you. Uh, and so we're going to go ahead and do that now. I think there are microphones are around. Glasses um, on so I can any, see you any, all. <laughs> anyone oh, who would like to ask a, a question for the Congressman, please? Okay. Right up front here, Mr. Chap. Just wait for the mic. There it is. It's uh, first. It's great to know that the trips do help, and you continue to encourage them. Because you visited our plant in Xi'an in March 2014. Yeah, when Certainly I was on my uh, on your crutches. I was on my crutches. Yeah, yes. right. So we we don't travel certain. over eight days all across China on crutches. On crutches. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Anyway, invite you back at some time. One of the frustrations a lot of us have, you know, you're very thoughtful about the problems. You know, you deal in depth about the different elements of it, but we often face sound bites very simple sound bites. You know, Chinese and U.S. businesses in China, Chinese businesses just export, take American jobs. How do you deal with that? I mean, I, I find Are you asking my advice how you might deal with it or how, yeah. how do I personally deal with it? Well, uh, both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that um, <clears throat> it, perhaps a little easier for a member of Congress to answer that question if they devote time to finding an answer to that question. Going into your own district, going to companies that are making things, that are building things, that are creating things, that people are creating, I shouldn't say companies, because people create these things, that people are creating, working for these companies, and then that thing ends up getting built and then in the hands of some uh, of a Chinese consumer. And then go, I mean, it, it's a little easier in my district because I can go point at big airplanes. So I try not to go point at big airplanes. I actually do. My staff has a directive to go do a better job and find smaller things that end up in the hands of uh, or in the houses of, of Chinese consumers. So in that regard, uh, in that way, it's easier for, for us. I think from a corporate perspective, the message um, has to, it's a little tougher because um, you have to have an internal communications plan for the people that are doing work in the U.S. for that corporation who understand the connection. And you have to uh, do a, uh, uh, if it's true, uh, a communication about why you have a presence in China. And a lot of, a lot of reasons now, it's, you're in, you know, it's in China for China or in China for Asia. Um, and that is itself a, uh, a, a message that needs to be communicated still and better uh, among individual uh, companies. Um, but you're, not gonna, you're never going to win the all jobs lost went to China argument. And I, and I just don't think people should try to win that argument. You can only win the argument that you have. You can only win the one that you own. And uh, so we have to, you know, like I said, as a member of Congress, it's a little easier, but we have to put time into creating that message, making it, showing that it's real, and then communicating it. Okay. Mr. Druckenmiller, just wait for, the, wait for the mic. It's coming. Thank you. Um, 
You mentioned earlier that when six of you went over there, four Republicans, two Democrats, it was easy to put up a united front because it was actually true that you agreed on the issues. In your opinion, how much has each party moved on the China issue in the, in the last three years? And where do you expect each party to be relative where they are now in five or ten years? Yeah. So, uh, a great question. I would uh, I'd ch uh, just not challenge you. I don't want to say challenge you. The, pre the, the premise you have is binary and it's actually trinary. I don't know if that's a word. Is that trinary? <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Too. It's not Democrats and Republicans. It's, um, and I, I've always said this that if the economic and trade hawks and the national security hawks and the human rights hawks on China ever found each other, it would fundamentally shift the center of gravity on China policy in Congress. And for the longest time, they never found each other. So all the, the human rights folks were sometimes, you know, Republicans and Democrats, and the trade hawks are mainly Democrats, but some Republicans, and the national security hawks were mainly Republicans, but some Democrats. And they always went off and they, they, they all didn't like China for their own reasons, from, from a policy perspective. Uh, we're talking policy here, folks. Um, and uh, uh, so long as they didn't know that each other had the same focus, uh, the gravity wasn't all that much. But they found each other in Congress. Um, and uh, I think if Dan was here, you'd probably see a difference of opinion on, on approaches <laughs> in, uh, on China, because I think we, we represent different, different elements of, I'm more, much more of an engagement still, but now I think I'm in the minority. I think five years ago I wasn't. Um, and so that's where it is today. Um, and I think the president uh, helped make that happen. For, again, for better or for ill, I think objectively, uh, the president made that happen. Uh, helped bring those folks together on accident, but together anyway. Um, so. Uh, five to ten years, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want us to fulfill our own prophecy about China being a peer competitor. Um, I, think we are, I think China is a peer competitor. Uh, but I think we're competing on a lot more than just on the national security front. But I also think China is a cooperator with the United States. And, uh, I'm not using terms that I made up. Uh, I'm stealing some stuff uh, from somebody, but I'm just, so just to be clear about that. Um, but it, what I did, I did a little something different with it, is I don't know if China and the US are competitive cooperators or cooperative competitors. And I think it depends on the sets of issues. Because the, the cooperator part, there's a lot of potential in cooperation with China on some things. But the competitive theme is shadowing those, those, that potential. And also has to do with, I think, a little bit, the, the president is, and his approach to, to, to China is shadowing that. Not to say that we don't need uh, tougher stances on China on some things, but we're giving up uh, opportunities as well when we do that. 
So um, uh, five to 10 years, I think, will be um, defined how we manage this um, cooperative competition, this com com competitive cooperation. Great, uh, Congressman, we know you have to run. Uh, I think you would all agree with me that we should all feel a lot better with folks as erudite as Congressman Larson uh, serving the people uh, in, in the Congress. Thank you so much for your Thanks time. Thanks a lot. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for coming. This was a fantastic uh, afternoon. I think we learned a lot. Uh, I think we did uh, accomplish our goal of trying to set the agenda. Uh, so please look for reports uh, from CSIS and from our colleagues and for future discussions like this. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more. And remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.